house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. celebrate movies, American movies. They provide us with our ticket to dream. To many of us, our personal time capsule made up of hopes, dreams, fantasies, and fears. This kaleidoscope of emotions that we call a movie affirms our values, questions our beliefs, establishes our heroes and heroines, and takes us on a trip to places that we never imagined we'd ever travel. Hello, I'm Laura Linney. And I'm Jody Foster. And welcome to This Head Oscar Buzz Film Institute Presents 100 Years, 100 Snubs. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, you usually hear us talk about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy, but for this May miniseries, we're doing something a little different. Every week in May, we'll be looking back and choosing the 100 greatest Oscar snubs of all time. And we'll have some special guests calling in to offer their choice for snub submissions. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my Ticket to Dreams, sung by Trisha Yearwood, Joe Reed. Chris, we're finally here. In a, we're finally here. We're finally here. Our we're most here ambitious May miniseries ever. Yes. Uh, uh, wondering what I'm guessing was the Chinese Grauman Theater. What's our version of that? Like, Oh, gosh. I mean, it's got to <laughs> be... us, like, solemnely uh, walking through the Scotiabank. We're in the Not empty Roy the Thompson box. Hall. Walking through uh, Scotia Eleven, or right? Oh, like small one of the small Scotia theaters. Yeah, that's exactly it. No, th- what we do is we we record all our bumpers while ascending the escalator at the Scotia Bank <laughs> Theater. Like all it is is just like one endless like escalator uh, opening. Uh, I'm Jody Foster. Welcome to. Um, it'd be weird to uh, to do this very American uh, list in a Canadian theater, of course. Listen, she was very clear. Uh, I the yelp that left my body when I watched <laughs> the uh, listeners we are making joke of. If you have not uh, seen it yet, we will be putting it on the Tumblr. It exists on YouTube. The entire AFI 100 Years 100 Movies. And it opens with not only the most demented schmaltzy Trisha Yearwood song. Tremendous. And tremendous. then a clip roll. And then Jodie Foster enters into a theater and does this whole monologue about what we are here to talk about today. And... She, she, it starts very, you know, uh, but at this point, you know, Sean Connery, the movies, um, is right. a little tired. We should be talking about Jodie Foster in the AFI 100 movies where she's like, America, no, what she, she's like, we're here to talk about movies. American, American movies, she says, <laughs> freedom fries herself, Jodie Foster. Listen, Jodie, mission accomplished, Foster. 
It's not called the United Nations Film Institute. It is called the American Film Institute. And Jody wanted to make sure we knew the parameters that we were. She said, don't you bother snail mailing me with your where the hell is fucking Godard or whatever. Because well, she won't. She, like, she speaks fluent French. We know that she's been in French cinema. Does she have French citizenship? She is talking out of both sides of her mouth here, Ms. Foster. She says, don't you compu-serve me talking about Antonioni. I am going to be talking about American movies in this special. Um, Which, was it all American movies in that It was. I forget. Okay. Yeah, that was the parameters. The parameters was the 100 greatest American films of all time for the American Film Institute. Listeners, Garys, uh, don't be mad at us for our choices. Be mad at the AFI. They did worse than us. I guarantee it. Um, if, yes, although um, I, here's what I will say. I am not here to. Uh, first of all, we're not we're not breaking we're not breaking down the AFI list. That is not what our main miniseries is. Well, we'll no. explain those parameters in a second. But I just want to say. The 1998 AFI 100 films, 100 years, 100 movies list is an imperfect document, but it is glorious in its imperfectness. Like, I am not here to be like, that list is dumb because it didn't have X, Y, and Z. That list was a snapshot of the American film canon at mm-hmm. that point in time. And I feel like it was a probably a pretty accurate one of where <laughs> things were at the time. And, like, it's, it's you know... Th- I'm not here to say that it should have been, you know, here uh, any other things, right? Those were the hundred movies. It's a, it's an important window into where things are going. And hey, who am I to argue with a panel that, by the looks of the talking heads on that special, include the likes of uh, Brooke Shields and Larry King and Bill Clinton and Walter and Cronkite, David Fucking Copperfield, and. <laughs> Listen, they talked to all the important Americans of of that moment. Um, they even in, they had Donald Trump in that reel. We're not going to talk I about know. it, but I was like, oh, you can't have anything nice. No, it's true. He literally shows up like throughout. Like it's it's fucking uh, uh, Forrest Gump through through weird American cultural history where you sort of go backwards. Um, but no, it's it's an interesting special. You get you get really you know some really interesting talking heads. Actually, you get William Friedkin and Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg and um and like I said, Cher because I I I like the fact that like I know that like Cher was really into The Godfather. Like that's really like I like that. That was very cool. Isn't she Italian? Uh, that's a good sure. Question. Sure, sure. Share is all things. Share belongs is, to all of us. She is the Barbie of the gay community. Share is everything, um, and she's he's just everything. Sunny. She yeah. is all heritages yeah. and backgrounds. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's, okay, let's let's contextualize what we're doing here. First. Let's do. We're here. Let's do. It is the May mini series for this year. Our May mini series. We have. We are our breaking fourth, our fourth or fifth May mini series. How many? May I believe May? our fifth motherfucker okay so every may we've done a focus we did the year 2003 we did the work of naomi watts we did focused features we did last year starting to break the mold we talked about entertainment weekly movie previews fall movie previews the Mm -hmm. the summer movie previews etc but those episodes were Still as about a much single about movie. the movie preview as the movie that we focused on that was the you know yeah. uh the headlining movie of that movie preview and yes. we really enjoyed kind of breaking 
the mold of it and, you know, making the miniseries be kind of its own beast and yes. its own kind of obsessive freak show quality. Yeah. And we heard from a lot of listeners who really liked that we were doing something different, different. and out of left field, you know, yeah. using the miniseries as an excuse to break our own mold. Exactly. We are doing that here today for the whole month of we May. Are. Five episodes. Five weeks, baby. We're... I mean, like, it's very true to what, like, we talk about, but maybe provides us an opportunity to do something listeners have wanted from the very beginning, and that's, you know, have some targeted conversation around movies that, because of our normal format, where we do a movie that has zero nominations... We can talk about maybe different Maybe we movies. can talk about some other movies. Yes. Um, but we're going to be doing... We have a list of 100 snubs, 50 chosen by Joe, 50 chosen by me, and then we're going to have... Some, Some of your treasured guests calling in, throwing yeah. in their own picks for the biggest snub of all time, or just a personal snub they think belongs on the list. Now, does that mean that we have more than 100? Yes. Have we ever claimed <laughs> to be good at math? No. 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 So you, listener, can decide. Also, uh, when we say... When we say 100 years, 100 snubs, we are in no way uh, beholden to the 100-year time frame in any way. We do not go far. We do not go as far back as 1923. We do not uh, limit ourselves to uh, nothing before 1923. We are using 100 years purely for the vi- the, for the uh, format that for the we symmetry. Are... Yes, exactly. Well, and clearly a reference, a nod to. The AFI list, which is just kind of a loose topic and framework, you know, I think the yes. had we done a mini series that was like movies that made that list that we could talk about, I feel yeah. like it would be hard to still tribute the list. It would feel yeah. it would feel like any other month, kind of, if we did, you know, five movies or whatever that showed up on the list that got zero Oscar nominations, you know, much like a, a second grader. When we say 100 years, what we mean is a very long time. That's all. Yes. That's just, you know, that's, yes. we are, we, we, yes. Um, but yeah, so the idea is uh, 100 years, 100 snubs, any any performance, uh, a craft achievement, a film, a director, any possible nomination that didn't happen from any movie that we decide is one of the 100 most egregious snubs in our hearts, then we will uh, we will present those, and we've got some rules which we'll get into. We do love a uh, a rubric. We got to give a framework to this. We can't we, be fully loosey goosey. Listen, no, we can't we, be fully loosey goosey Laduka. Let loose, not here, not we, here, baby. Listen, we no. will be letting loose. You can trust <laughs> and believe. We will let loose. Uh, but we will let loose within uh, not the only will upon we let loose, we will definitely say which snubs were high low. We will be very clear about that. We will be very clear about Stop what it. snub is no. second place. No, no. Who we think was third no. place. No. Who was low safe. Can't do, can't it, do know, low we safe. gotta break it down. I'm not um, doing low safe. I'm not doing it. I, I refuse. <laughs> However, um, we I are mean, no. going to culminate <laughs> yes. with both of our picks. That's at true. At the end of this May miniseries, our personal picks for the greatest Oscar snub. That's right. Of all time. This is not a ranked list. This is not going to be a ranked list. We are not counting down from 100. We are just presenting our 100, except our final pick will be each of our 
each of our chosen number one. So yes, uh, we're not doing we, the full ranking. We just got we 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 have to have some momentum. We have to have something for you to look forward to. That's right. To guess maybe what we're gonna say. We yeah. love hearing chatter. We love a guessing of game. What you think we're gonna do? Yes, we love hearing uh, a dissatisfied. Um, uh, kvetching about what we yes, have. Yes, if you are upset that we did not put your pet project in here, or yes. you think we have, listen, I know what the list is. We know <laughs> right. what's coming. That's right. I do think that there is one or two that maybe there's some reason for us to talk about why it's not there. But mm-hmm. uh, we might also have at the end of this mini series the 100 years, 100 snubs, snubs. Oh. <laughs> That's you know. next May. That's next May. We do 100 years, 100 <laughs> the, snubs, the, snubs. The snubs that did not make the yeah. list. Uh, my our snu- list of snubs. Listen, listen. My snub, my 100 years of snubs is snubbing. Yes. Um, yeah. One thing we learned doing this project, I feel like it's safe to say, Chris, is that while 100 years is representative of a very long time, 100 uh snubs is a very small number <laughs> and we have brutal brutal do you know how many darlings i had to kill many 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 um, and like peek behind the curtain we also were like okay so we're gonna separately come up with a loose list mm-hmm. that i think once we're personally both reaching 100 we're like oh shit this is already hard and i already know i'm at an incongruous number and i believe i texted you i was like i'm already at like 120 and i am not done making my long list (laughs) exactly so we figured out where we crossed paths where we had the same uh things and that number was very few yeah so it didn't help us as much as we thought it would essential is not here trusted believe we tried to get it there yeah um but 100 is not a large number. All right, so why don't you explain to our uh, phenomenal listeners what the ground rules are for this list of 100 snubs? So the first rule, we are only having one snub per category per per year that it was selected. Right. No more than one. We're not doing one snub for every category every year, but there will be no more than one. Yeah. If a guest, you know, throws in something That's that is like, say Joe has a best actor candidate from 2001 and another uh, a guest does, that's that's fine. We'll get that's the, their we'll, business. We'll allow that. That's, yes. you know, uh, listeners can decide if the guests uh, submissions are canon or not. Uh, you know, they are. Our guests are ca- our guests are. Of, valued. Co- of course, they're canon. Yes. But I think if you decide that the guest submissions are canon, it also means you decide you don't. No, you don't. You don't care about math. You can't be confined. Math is for wieners. to concepts yeah. such as numbers. Yeah, no, you know? we're we are. Um, yeah. Math is for the weak minded. Uh, <laughs> that was my review of a beautiful mind, by the way. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, yes. So on top of that, when we mention our snub pick, we are also going to be giving the boot to one of the nominees. We are going to replace that nominee. We are one of the real life nominees that history. was really nominated. Yes. What are, what should we call it if the person we're replacing actually won that Oscar? Um. Uh. If we're giving the boot to 
the winner. That's the house down boot. That is the house the... down boot. It's the Naomi. Er, no, it's the Nomi Malone understudy. <laughs> Fine. Yes, the winner takes uh takes it all and goes home. That's the uh yes. Um. Yeah, we can we can boot any of the five nominees that we choose, including the one who actually won. Uh, but we are, we are, uh, it, in that way, it's a more rigorous intellectual exercise where if we're going to say that something deserved to be nominated, we got to put our money where our mouth is and say something's got to go. I have also instituted, I have kind of strong armed that we will have a rule called the Nicole Page Brooks rule, the Nicole Page Brooks vote. So before you explain that, Chris, I'm just going to allow the readers to go with me on the journey of when Chris says the Nicole Page Brooks rule, do you immediately think that Chris's rule is that I can jump in and say that this is just malicious faggotry and, uh, and, and, and shut down the discussion? <laughs> or is it what Chris really intended, which is, or is it that you have to determine which nominees should get a French manicure on their toes. <laughs> um, no, what's really the Nicole Page Brooks rule? Uh, you send all these bitches home. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you, we we reserve the right to say to send them all home to start fresh and and only our nominees. You don't uh, tell Rue which one you're eliminating. Send them all home. Give all it right. to me. Give it to this person. Now that we have referenced uh, the most important uh, drag queen in all of will the Nicole history, Page Brooks vote get uh, thrown into the mix here? Will it happen? Will I do it? Will Joe do it? Will we both do it? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Five weeks, babies. We're 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 gearing up. All right, twenty snubs per episode. So we should probably not waste any more time. No, we, let's, um, let's get into it all right ms linney uh also we're gonna we're gonna try to not have multiple mentions of a movie of an actor an actress a craft right. person we're Keep spreading we're spreading the wealth spread the yes. wealth we're not gonna have a full episode of nicole kidman snubs right exactly exactly uh well while we get right. into it uh mr reed yes would you like to give us your first snub Number well, we're not numbering these, so it's not number one hundred. But the first film from our one hundred years, one hundred snubs. I wanted to pick someone who was definitional to our mission statement. Uh, this is someone from a movie that we have covered on this podcast before. They won't all be, uh, but this one is. I have chosen from the best actress category in two thousand five. Ms. Cameron Diaz from In Her Shoes. We have discussed this movie before. We love this movie. Curtis Hansen's In Her Shoes. Cameron Diaz, Tony Collette playing sisters. They're at odds. Cameron moves down to Florida, lives in a retirement community. She learns how to read. She learns how to shop for old people and make them look... Well, she doesn't learn. She already knew how to shop, honey. Um, but she she makes some money instead of fleecing her her wonderful grandmother out of her cash. She decides to start a business uh, shopping for old people. It is a wonderful movie. It is to me the movie that most shows 
how much Cameron Diaz really does have in her arsenal that uh, we talk a lot about her being an underrated actress through the years and an underappreciated actress, even though she's, you know, had Golden Globe nominations and, and has had roles for which she's been praised. Um, in Her Shoes, interestingly enough, got some awards attention for Shirley MacLaine, deservedly, and I think had some awards buzz for Tony Collette. And I think a lot of people just sort of Cameron Diaz was the other one in the movie, even though the more times I see that movie, which is many, the more impressive she is. She harnesses her own sort of screen persona, which is, you know, intimidatingly beautiful. Um, I'm not going to say that her, her screen persona is like dumb blonde, but like there are aspects to her that could be you know, categorize that right way, right? And she uses that and uses all of those sort of perceptions about herself in a very canny way in this performance. So I know Are I you love saying this she's a Mavis Gary who can't read or write. Kind of a little bit. Yeah. Yes. I think Mavis I think she's she's not as irredeemably mean as Mavis Gary is, but um, she's, she's got a, she, you know, she's got a heart there. She's, she wants to do right by, uh, by her, especially by her sister. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of colors to this performance. There's a lot of aspects. She could, she's, she's petty and she's, you know, sad and she's, uh, fiercely loyal and she's maddening and she's kind of everything in that movie. And I really love her. And talking about, should I get le- should I let you weigh in on Cameron Diaz before I talk about who I'm booting from the 2005 Best Actress lineup? How do we do this? Uh, How do we want to do this? I am interested to hear who you are kicking out of the lineup. I will say this is I love that you chose this as your first one. This feels like such a Joe Reed first pick. It's it wonderful. Is. It is. But also it gives us room to say there's a lot of things that we have whole entire episodes on in our backlog that we yeah could go find our in her shoes episode yeah so like picking those that we've talked about before like felt kind yes. semi definitive but also like mm-hmm. in a way we can say you can go back to the whole episode if we include it in this list but like if we don't chances are we have a whole episode where we yes. were praising that thing so what's our if I, it's I, not in, if it's not in this list. I want to uh, tell people what number episode to go find, and uh, uh, give me a second. In Her Shoes was during the pandemic. Was it? I think. Oh, I think. Gosh. Feels like everything was during the pandemic. I Hold mean, on. half of this podcast was in the pandemic. Oh, my God. Ugh, okay. Uh, in Her Shoes was not during the pandemic. That baby was early 2019. It was episode 76. So go back and uh, find our episode 76 to talk about In Her Shoes. Okay. So... The 2005 Best Actress race. That was the one where Reese Witherspoon wins for Walk the Line. I am on the record as being happy for Reese Witherspoon winning an Oscar. I think she's good in Walk the Line. Probably not an Oscar winner if I'm voting from, like, everybody that year. But, like, I have no I have no quarrel with Reese in Walk the Line. Other nominees are Judy Dench in Mrs. Henderson Presents, Felicity Huffman in Transamerica, Kira Knightley in Pride and Prejudice, Charlize Theron in North Country. We've certainly so, talked many times about how this was not co- perceived as a competitive best actress year. Right, 
Reese was the only real question throughout this Oscar year, and I because I imagine I remember early on there was talk that Reese would be pushed as a supporting actress, that it would be Joaquin Phoenix's movie as Johnny Cash, and that Reese Witherspoon would be a supporting actress contender, but she was always sort of thought of as a major threat to win in whichever category. She moves into lead at some point during the season, and it's hers to lose pretty early on in in that Oscar campaign. Um, I've seen Mrs. Henderson Presents. I don't remember a ton about it. It's one of, like, many Judy Dench Oscar nominations and probably in the lower third for me in terms of, like, Judy Dench Oscar nominations that I would uh, value. Um, Felicity Huffman in Transamerica is kind of a moment in time, and I haven't rewatched that movie in years, and I don't really want to make any grand statements about that. I remember thinking... This is a good performance, but like I'm not quite sure what what's at play here, right? I was a little skeptical of that whole venture, even though there were parts of that movie I thought were very humanistic and and you know good, and I'm not ready to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. It was a different time. Anyway, you could probably throw warm milk out onto Route 56 and uh <laughs> it will age better than that movie has. I I am not surprised uh, to to hear that. Yeah, Keira Knightley and Pride and Prejudice. I love. I love that she's nominated for that movie. I love that movie. I love Joe Wright. I think uh, everything about that is good. Charlize Theron for North Country, the quintessential Halo nomination. She wins for Monster in two thousand three. Two years later, the Academy is like, we still like ya. Uh, she plays a uh, mine worker in Minnesota. And uh, she's uh, agitating for worker safety. And, you know, we are very pro-union on this podcast, so we love Charlize in North Country. That said, I think Charlize is maybe my boot in this category. And for, not that it's a bad performance, I don't think there are bad performances in this category, actually. I think it's probably the one that I feel like is least essential to have an Oscar nomination in the almost two decades of hindsight we have there. So I think I'm booting Charlize and I'm slotting in Cameron Diaz, who automatically becomes like my best of the category. You know what I mean? <laughs> like she's then my should win uh, in in 2005 Best Actress. How do you feel about that? Uh, thank you for not booting Dame Judy. We take nothing away from her, even though no one remembers that movie. I remember that movie as having full frontal Bob Hoskins nudity, so I endorse it. <laughs> okay. um, uh, I mean, Transamerica has certainly not aged well and is certainly uh, definitely problematic i think even probably by the standards of 2005 however having felicity huffman a future felon um as an <laughs> oscar nominee uh we maybe don't want to take that away sure um yeah yeah a uh, net neutral boot all right uh chris who was your inaugural pick for 100 snubs i could love someone even if i you know wasn't paid for it I love you and you don't pay me. So for my first pick, I maybe did this as a decoy and trying to throw off the scent uh in Yeah, you really had the, the Gary's this. clamoring on Twitter about your uh <laughs> your hint there. 
Uh, Gary's, we're going back to a time known as 1991. We're talking about the best actor race, and I wanted to throw out River Phoenix in my own private Idaho, Gus Van Sant's uh, masterpiece that some people, uh, based off a letterbox, uh, need to rewatch because I think they are a bit confused about that movie's uh, status as genius. Um, Wait, why? What's going on? Uh, I just saw a lot of like three and a half stars on mm. my own private Idaho, and it's like, gang, need you to bump yeah. that up, please. Yeah, it's a great movie. Um, he gives just, I mean, when you talk about River Phoenix and you talk about what we lost when we lost him, yeah. you know, people talk in these terms of like Heath Ledger. Um, and, you know, River Phoenix did not leave us without an Oscar nomination. He was nominated for supporting actor for a full-fledged, basically every fucking scene of the movie. It's a classic, running on yeah, young actor who gets put in supporting because he's a young actor. Yeah. Uh, he plays, uh, you know, a uh, uh, hustler, sex worker, um, opposite Keanu Reeves, who's also tremendous in the movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, this is a movie I wanted to include. I almost debated putting Gus Van Sant for Best Director, but, like, mm-hmm. you know, River Phoenix, just for people who haven't seen that movie— Go, go watch that movie and try not to feel a tremendous sense of loss. There's a specifically iconic scene where he somewhat stumbles through a confession of queer longing toward it's it's you know it's the fire scene it's the, yeah. you know they're sitting by a, a yeah. fire and love for Keanu Reeves and it's just I think any queer identifying person will feel such heartbreak and recognition uh through that scene it's probably um, a movie that plays really well today because I think it's a movie that addresses queer identity head on without drawing very bold lines in the sand anywhere. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's a very like 2023 concept of queer sexuality for a lot of young people, right? A lot of people don't really uh, want to draw these very, you know, limiting lines as to, you know, what my identity is, but it's, it's, it's still nonetheless a movie that does not back down from its queer identity and themes. And I love that about my own private Idaho. And I mean, River Phoenix in this performance is just one of those truly once in a generation, holy shit, mm-hmm. uh, young lead actor thing where it's like, we're going to be watching this person. Yeah give you know art form changing work for the next few decades and the tragedy of river phoenix is he would die two or three years after this movie yeah Um, his last movie year his last Uh, movie came out in 1993 but he he was obviously passed in 92 uh, maybe yeah um yeah 92 Um, 93 something like that And it's not that this performance wasn't awarded. He unanimously won Best Actor in Venice. He won the National Society of Film Critics and Indie Spirit. But uh, I think it should be an Oscar nominee. He's already an Oscar nominee by this point. um, So he should be a Best Actor nomination. The uh, nominees that year are Anthony Hopkins winning for Hannibal Lecter, Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. Other nominees were Nick Nolte, Prince of Tides. Warren Beatty and Bugsy, Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, and Robin Williams in The Fisher King. Yes. This, I think, is actually a really great Best Actor lineup. And it is. And a, and a very, um, everybody in that lineup was sort of big 
at that moment, right? Right. Where whether it be like box office, like obviously like Robin Williams, Robert De Niro, uh, even Nick Nolte at the time, these were all like leading men in American films at the time. Warren Beatty has, of course, you know, the entire uh, previous decades worth of, you know, work and and sort of uh, place of prominence within the film industry. By that point, he's sort of Bugsy isn't his. He doesn't direct Bugsy, but D- Bugsy does feel like authorial it sort of was like handed yeah, to him as levinson. like his it's barry levinson but i remember at the time even like people sort of like yeah this is like warren Beatty's bugsy you know what I mean? and people still perceive that movie it, yeah perceive that movie that way yeah it's interesting to wonder who the fifth place person was i mean you would maybe guess robin williams but robin williams was also like famously not nominated for awakenings the year before right um, and they gave it to robert de niro it could be robert de niro was fifth place even though that was it's such yeah. a huge performance um i just remember that nolte was was thought of as the alternative to hopkins mm-hmm. like nolte Back was, when was running hopkins was presumed to be supporting um, yes yeah and nick nolte is tremendous in that movie i mean these are a lot of tremendous performances which makes the boot fairly easy for me because i think it's actually a bad performance and it's warren Beatty and bugsy yeah you're not a bugsy fan i i was yeah. i mean it took me forever to watch bugsy for the longest time bugsy was the most recent best picture nominee i hadn't seen yeah and i knocked off two uh movies for this list um so now my most recent uh best picture nominee i haven't seen is hope and glory john borman's wow all right uh i'll catch up to it i guess yeah um yeah warren Beatty and bugsy i don't think it's a good performance i do think that there is some immaculate craft in that movie shocking to me that that is harvey keitel's only acting nomination it is um Yeah, it's... I've not always been on board with Warren Beatty as an actor. You can come for me if you want. I don't always love him, and I really didn't love him in this. I I love Warren Beatty as a... um, an artist. As a... as a... I I almost wanted to say a personality, a Hollywood personality, but that's that that shortchanges him uh, as somebody who I think has a very instrumental role in the development of American film. Speaking of American film, yes, um, he's incredibly throughout the, in, throughout the instrumental. Decades. Yes, but um, I don't disagree with you as you know the acting is maybe the least of his uh, attributes, even though sometimes I think he can be incredibly good as an actor, but it's not every time and. I agree with you that of these five, certainly I'm not going to boot Hopkins. Certainly I'm not going to boot De Niro, whose nomination for Cape Fear is kind of a miracle because that is a fucking lunatic movie and a lunatic performance. But it is unforgettable. You cannot shake that. I think it's really good. It's been a billion years since I've seen The Fisher King, but it's not surprising that Robin Williams was nominated. That's very... Robin Williams, give him the keys and and let him take the car out for a spin kind of a performance. Um, but that's what you want, I think, out of the Fisher King. And yeah, He's the best I, thing about the Fisher King, and I say that loving Mercedes rule in all things. I love Jeff Bridges in that movie. I, that was during the time when I feel like a lot of Jeff Bridges was in a lot of movies where everybody around him was getting nominated, but him because he's yeah. in Fearless in '93 and like Rosie Perez very much deserved that nomination, but like Bridges is fantastic in that movie. And um, anyway, yeah, I think Beatty's. I think Beatty's a good call. What do you have next for us? What is it like for you? Hard. I miss you. 
for you. It's lonely. I'm going to take a little trip to the best original screenplay category of 1996, and I am going to hand a nomination to one of my favorite filmmakers who I think we all, whenever we talk about this filmmaker, this is somebody who uh, we follow it up with, like, doesn't get the praise that she deserves, doesn't get the recognition that she deserves, and that's Nicole Holofcener. Her debut movie in 1996 was Walking and Talking. There's any number of screenplays that I feel like we probably could advocate for her from, you know, Please Give to Lovely and Amazing to uh, Enough Said. And ultimately, I think a debut nomination for Walking and Talking is the one I'm going to stand behind. I really, this was one of those movies that I can't remember the exact context, whether it was like one of the premium cable channels uh, was airing it, or maybe even I've talked about when I went to college that we had a sort of on campus closed circuit channel that would just like play DVDs, like just yeah. sort of like you know, they would cycle through. And uh, however, I saw it, it was one of those movies that I that was kind of unheralded for me, and I didn't quite know. The only thing I knew is that I knew Anne Heche from Another World, and this was, of course, her in, in a very different context. So I remember watching Walking and Talking and being decently blown away by how successful it was at telling this story of a friendship between two, you know, women in their twenties who are trying to figure out this, you know, next stage of their life. And one of them's in a relationship and the other one isn't. And there is, you know, feelings about that. And Catherine Keener and Anne Heche are really tremendous acting wise, but they're working from a really, really solid script that is insightful as hell that is funny. There's so many like weird and funny little bits to this movie, and it gives the actors a lot of space to, you know, to to work. And it's it's you know humanistic and it's kind and it's you know very relatable. I think I I the characters in this movie are not from my own circumstance, and yet I can find plenty of aspects of them where I'm like, yeah, I feel that. You know what I mean? Like, yes, that rings true. And it's really, really fantastic. And I think in a more perfect world, Nicole Holofcener gets nominated right away for her debut movie and then becomes somebody who Oscar voters sort of look to through the years and maybe has, you know, three or four Oscar nominations by this point in time. And... I don't know. I really love it. I, I, how do you, how do you feel about walking and talking? This list could not exist without us putting Nicole Hollis Center on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in many I mean, ways, this project was created so we could be like, here's the Nicole Hollis Center nomination. I would throw it <laughs> I mean, well, Nicole Hollis Center's nomination too is for a movie that was somewhat extensively rewritten taken away and from her yeah taken away from her essentially because we're talking she, about can you ever forgive me yes yeah and the firing of julianne moore because she wanted to wear a fat suit and then mm-hmm. without julianne moore the movie falls apart yeah um financing wise uh, walking and talking is like one of the like definitive movies about the 90s in terms of the way we lived in the 90s to yeah. me like yeah. 
and like I think movie people credit movies like Reality Bites in that way, but I think more of like Walking and Talking along with The Watermelon Woman. It's one of the best movies about video store culture. <laughs> yes. Um, when I think about Walking and Talking, I think about that shot that probably wouldn't exist in any other movie. Uh, or made by a different filmmaker, you know, the shot of the two of them walking down the stairs together. Mm, yes. Um, and what it does to that movie, having that shot in there, much in the way that Carol has a very similar shot in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just speaks such volumes. Um, yes, I think this is an excellent choice. In terms of what I'm going to boot, so the nominees for 1996 original screenplay, Fargo wins it for the Coen brothers. Also nominated, John Sayles for Lone Star, Cameron Crowe for Jerry Maguire, Mike Lee for Secrets and Lies, and then for Shine, which was uh, a Best Picture nominee that year, Scott Hicks, and then Jan Sardi uh, for the screenplay for Shine. This, to me, is a pretty easy call. I think Shine definitely feels like the weakest of all of those, both as a movie and as a screenplay. I think just even in terms of the talent involved, no shade uh, to Scott Hicks or Jan Sardia, but like Mike Lee, Cameron Crowe, Joel and Ethan Cohen, John Sayles, like all of those people giving some of their best work. In- Look, the girls are not out here talking about shine. Like, right. That's yes. I mean, and you know, and the other four movies are all hold up very well. I think today Fargo and Jerry Maguire, Lone Star and Secrets and Lies. So I do have to see Lone Star. Uh, this is a pretty easy call. So, yeah, I feel like we can, uh, in the interests of moving things along, I don't think we need to belabor the point. But uh, Walking and Talking slots in for Shine. And that is a tremendous category. If you look at that, if you put in Nicole <laughs> Hollisoner for Walking and Talking, that is a bulletproof original screenplay category. 1996, what you could have had. So, yes. What do you have next for me, Christopher? Exactly 10 years in the future. One of, I would say, the biggest... We're not just talking, like, personal canon here. Yeah. This is a personal canon choice yes. for me. Yes. But in terms of, like, the history of notorious snubs, we're talking about... My next choice is a snub that... The snub itself was the lead of Oscar nomination morning headlines that day. Ahead of anything else being nominated ahead of the rest of the ahead of whatever the nominee well it was the nomination leader and still didn't get best picture so it's like you kind of have to lead with it and that is dream girls it is so what category are you are you are you best picture best picture best picture for dream girls in 2006 all right i fucking love dream girls there's a few things at play here one, it had a teaser trailer with no footage from the movie released a year before the movie came out, and it was just like it existed to. Was say that the one where like the word "dream girls" just went across the screen and was like "dream girls"? Basically, with yeah. an outline that was not Jennifer Hudson or Beyonce or Anika. <laughs> it was it was the actual Supremes. <laughs> it was so like they made it so blatantly obvious that it was going to be a yeah. major full court press Oscar campaign, and it really put a patina that made a lot of people kind of eye-roll the movie, let alone that it's a movie with essentially an all-black cast. Right. You know, uh, 
you know, variation, a, th- a thinly veiled. Uh, this was also you know, satire on Motown. The peak of Beyonce skepticism. This was just before we had all decided that Beyonce was fl- without flaw and could, you know, broker no no dissent. And this was at a moment where, especially in the mo- in regards to movies, people were really like. Beyonce's not really an actress. Beyonce's not, certainly not. She a... shows up in this movie and kills it. Yeah, she's very good in this movie. But also, I think there was a false promise when Chicago won Best Picture that we were going to be in a golden age of Academy anointed musicals. Mm-hmm. And since Chicago, if you discount, if you rule out biopics from it, I think it's just. Is it just two musicals have been nominated, Les Mis and La La Land? I mean, Cats. Of, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, Cats won Best Picture. Um, um, Hold on. Hold on. That can't be right. Is it right? Since Chicago, only two? It's two or three. I might be forgetting something. Hold but, like, you please. have all of these musicals. And Dreamgirls, like, again, nomination leader was somewhat in the water that, well, maybe Clint Eastwood will nudge out because the late-breaking thing, the Clint Eastwood late-breaking movie was Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, but, like, Dreamgirls is, an, I think, an immaculately made movie musical. It is assembled brilliantly. I think it is a flawed stage show, and the movie fixes so many of them some of it with its additions but also just in the way that the movie moves right um and yeah like i think one of the most like headline grabbing snubs uh of my time as someone who obsessed over the oscars what do you have to say about dream girls i mean i think dream girls is a very good movie here's the thing i'm gonna put a little bit of a challenge to you is you mentioned that dream girls was the nomination leader and had a ton of nominations when supporting actress for Jennifer Hudson is not in, almost wins for Eddie Murphy is right. Is you could look at dream girls and be like, this is not a movie that was snubbed in the greater picture of things. So why I'm, why the importance to have the best picture snub as one of the 100 snubs? Well, okay, and this this brings up an excellent point because you know, in making some of our selections for our list, you know, we're West Side about, Story. Well, by the way, West Side Story movie... is also nominated for best picture. Oh, West That's Side Story. Thing. That's yeah, the yeah. third one, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um. Uh. COVID brain. Whoop, the yep. COVID Oscars. Yep. Not it. They don't. They have not stuck in my brain. Yes. Um, when we're selecting this list, it's like, okay, maybe we feel something that missed a director nomination or something for a movie that was, you know, it got its due in some way. This, however, this one specifically felt, you know, there's, there's snubs that just happen. And then sometimes there are a few that feel pointed it did feel this is one that i do think might actually qualify as a true snub as in people were making the active choice to be like not you baby to not give it to dream girls because like it was so kind of out in front in that season and people forget it it was taken for such granted that it was absolutely going to and like 
you know, yeah. you're talking about the year after, you know, Brokeback Mountain loses Best Picture, and there's a whole, like, thing of homophobia and, like, dude movies. And... What it means is that a lot of people who vote who voted for Dreamgirls to be nominated within their own little branch then voted for Best Picture and were like, no, not that one. Right. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. No, I think that's right. I think, uh, you know... I'm definitely a little more tepid on Dreamgirls as a film overall than you are. I think there are high highs, and I think there are aspects of that movie that I feel like are not as successful. And um, I love that that movie exists. I haven't revisited it in a while, and in part, I don't... Maybe that's part of you know me not really loving it at the time, and I haven't really had a huge impulse to go revisit Dreamgirls. But... Um, weirdly, I think the thing that I ride the hardest for in that movie is Beyonce. I think Beyonce is actually really good in that movie. And of all the, of all the acclaimed performances for Jennifer Hudson and Eddie Murphy. And I I think I, Beyonce is definitely my favorite. Her, the scene where she performs Listen, uh, uh, in that little studio, uh, recording box is really tremendous and 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 a absolute window into like the beyonce that we know today the way that she could command a space in you know uh, (laughs) in that way um that number also solves a huge problem for the stage show (laughs) because without that number which now is in every production of it it's like you don't really know how to care or think about dina jones right other than slay mother um all right talk about who you're you're snubbing out because we we gotta uh yes we gotta keep it moving we gotta gotta keep keep it moving moving. though i will say for everybody who always talks about and i'm telling you or talks about listen i actually think in that movie one of the best musical number sequences uh since chicago is in step into the bad side perfect sequence all right um when they come out in the red uh numbers it's just like it is everything to yeah. me um okay so the nominees are departed winds babel letters from iwo jima little miss sunshine and the queen i'm very interested to see where you go with this because i think there are three poss three maybe four possibilities there, there's there are options there's yeah. options here yeah. i haven't seen babel in a long time i really respect the ambition of that movie okay especially you know pre everyone hating in your for just finding him annoying right. whatever I still enjoy him. Uh, Not necessarily in that mode. Um, I am a noted Little Miss Sunshine dissenter. I know. However, it is absurd to me that the Queen was taken as seriously as to be. (laughs) I mean, you're giving Helen Mirren the Oscar. It is the quintessential to me, like front runner performer elevates their movie to best picture status and like but you're already giving it to her you're not going to give that movie best picture i rewatch it and maybe it's just i am not absorbed in the royals in a way that the culture is but i think that movie is fine to not good like (laughs) and i love stephen frears i was gonna say i do like whenever the culture comes around and is like we're gonna give stephen frears another best picture nomination you know what i mean like it is cyclical in that way i also think it's just like i lived through all that but like i didn't have a relation to it happening sure i feel like so much of that movie people think that it's so great because they are pushing their feelings yeah of going through it onto the movie and i think if you don't it's yeah 
kind of inert to me. So you're booting so I'm the, booting queen. the queen. All right. Okay. I I support that. I think that's I think that's highly supportable. I'm not sure what I would go with, but we're in the interest of time. I'll uh, I'll let the listeners uh, ruminate on that. Okay. This is what happens when you die. That is what happens when he dies, and that is what happens when they die. It's all very personal. And I'll tell you something. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have had my little accident. So my next choice, I'm going back to 1988, the uh, the Oscars for 1988. I'm going in the Best Art Direction category, a film that, while I understand why it was not maybe on the Oscars' radar, I think maybe a few years later it would have been. And looking back, it's kind of insane that it didn't get nominated. Uh, the film is Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. That movie is wall-to-wall art direction. And uh, so this would be... Some of the most like iconic, noteworthy right. uh, you know, design of uh, cinema. <laughs> Production designed by the great Bo Welch, who was, uh, has gotten four Oscar nominations throughout his career for A Color Purple, or sorry, The Color Purple, A Little Princess, The Birdcage, and Men in Black. Uh, art direction by Tom Duffield, set, direction, set decoration by Catherine Mann. Um, the thing that is, I mean, you look at Beetlejuice once and you're like, yeah, art direction. There's like so much going on. There are so many weirdo sets, but like it's, it's in so many different arenas, right? There is, you know, the house itself before they die, right? Which is like quintessential, you know, fixer upper old New England quaint giant, you know, home. Then when they come back after the Dietzes have taken to it, all of the like tragic 80s awfulness of Lydia Dietz and her decorating style, all the, you know, weird art and the sharp angles, that porch that has the the, the freestanding wall, <laughs> like the Otho of it all, right? The Otho sort of uh, aesthetic of it all. And then you go in, you go beyond that, right? You're shrunken down into the little miniature model of the town where they find Beetlejuice for the first time. And all of those little, the weird little whorehouse that exists there, the um, the styrofoam grass, the all of that. And then you go into the afterlife, right? The waiting room in the afterlife. Everything about that, the... Um, the sort of industrial afterlife-ness. There are like eight different modes that this movie needs to exist in on an art direction level, and they nail it every single time. And it's so fucking memorable. And it's so... And part of it is, you know, there's practical effects going on, and there's obviously the whole thing is like this Tim Burton vision, right? But like, imagine being tasked to replicate whatever the fuck Tim Burton has in his head Art direction wise. <laughs> I mean, like, I think from an Oscar y snob point is like part of the reason probably why it wasn't recognized for art direction is because all of that gets dis- ascribed to Burton yeah. rather than like the person who actually designed it. You know? Yeah. Like I said, like imagine Tim Burton coming to you and be like, here's the thing that I have in my head and him talking to you and explaining it to you. And you're like, oh, like, okay, oh, now right, I've got right. to like do this on a practical level. But it remains a really strange omission that didn't happen anyway, because that movie won a makeup Oscar. That is true. That is true. So it was definitely on people's radar. So yeah, yeah, all the more uh, 
puzzling. So the nominees that year, Dangerous Liaisons wins, which is, you know, speaking of Stephen Frears, a sumptuous costume drama that is never a surprise when those kinds of movies uh, win for art direction. And it's an incredible movie, and it looks incredible. Other nominees were Beaches, Rain Man, which won the the um, Best Picture that year, Tucker the Man in His Dream, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So I haven't seen Tucker the Man in His Dream, so I can in good conscience beat that. You wouldn't I haven't remove seen it. it. Um, who Framed Roger Rabbit is, you know, with everything else going on, it's also a really, really well, uh, well art directed movie. There's a lot going on there, uh, in the in the practical scenes and the you know the the recreation of of that time period. Um, so I'm down to, <laughs> interestingly enough, so the choice becomes between Rain Man and Beaches. Who among us has not had to make that choice in our life? Um, <laughs> Rain Man's. A best picture winner, so you can see why it sort of got brought along. But like, what in that movie is particularly strong on an art direction level? And I mean the casino sequence, but one presumes they just shot in a casino. In a casino? <laughs> not right. like look. I'm not going to be ignorant here and say that there's not actual like design and set decoration that still goes into sure. a location shoot, but like. But you can say the, the same. Casino is why it got nominated. You can say the same about beaches for the most part. Like they shot at a you know seaside little you know uh, vacation home on the beach or whatever. Adirondack chairs wow. go a long way with me, but still, hey, industry found dead. Joe Reed says, "Buy industry." First of all, it's O industry, so uh, you can take your little slam dunk. And uh, no, that's a good point. And also Otto Titzling. And I think that's where. It's like, it, you're not about to auto-bootsling beaches. <laughs> also, now that I think about it, their little New York apartment is very well depicted in terms of, you know, they're banging on the radiator with a pot and, you know, uh, they're growing, you know, they've got their little plant. Somewhat that prototypical the... Nancy Myers shit, like, well, in terms of, like, well-designed homes. Well, sure, but in that way, it's like this nightmare, tiny little, you know, like uh, Murphy bed, uh, New York City apartment where they, neither one of them have any money. Um, but yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, the O industry moment and the auto titzling moment certainly offer more to play around with than whatever's going on with Rain Man, which I could understand from like a costume level, right? Those like, you know, those sharp suits and the Ray-Bans or whatever, or uh, from a, you know, there's Rain Man's not a perfect movie, but I think there are enough things to recommend Rain uh, for Rain Man. I think Art Direction's a little bit of a puzzler, so I am going to boot the Best Picture winner from this category, which is not the last time I will boot a Best Picture winner from a, from a lineup, um, and I will slot in Beetlejuice over Rain Man for Art Direction in 88. What do you got next, Chris? You could put an ad in the paper. <laughs> Chef wanted. Yeah, Chef stroke boyfriend required for gorgeous girl. No, Mature woman with cat. <laughs> no, mature-ish. We don't want to put them off, do we? <laughs> we are jumping ahead to a very contentious acting year. That is 2010. We are talking about a performance that there was a lot of hand-wringing of, where does it go? Is this a lead? Is it supporting? Is it supporting? Is it a lead? I myself have changed my thought on it many times. Uh, we're talking about Leslie Manville in another year. Today, I am saying that it is a snub for Best Supporting Actress. She's on my lead actress ballot that year, I will say that. 
Well, she won the lead war award both at uh, AARP and NBR, National Board of Review. She won their lead prize. BAFTA nominated her in supporting. Listen, I'm not going to be like, well, just jockey for where you can get nominated. <laughs> but for her performance that lies on a straddling line and for a year that had really really stiff competition in lead yes it did they should have definitively gone supporting um i still it's think a tremendous I'll... performance i mean yeah. like and leslie manville would eventually get that somewhat surprising phantom thread nomination i think yes. that that nomination can thank this performance for it as well she is yeah. the She's you so know good. nightmare drunk friend who eventually jim broadbent and ruth sheen uh, get fed up with she is basically fully functioning on her need for uh attention and her need to be important to other people mm-hmm. um in this really raw way that i think when you watch is um it taps into i think that part of you know need for other people that is true in all of us and that we're all terrified of and afraid of oh, and the performance is this movie scared the that. shit out of me like she absolutely is, yeah to the point that she does so much cringy stuff and yes. you know yep. manville's performance is incredibly human throughout um yeah. i understand anybody who says that she's a lead i today think that it's supporting yeah. i've maybe thought she was a lead before but i would probably err on and a lot of the distinction of well she's not supporting even though she's gone for a good chunk of the movie is people perceived ruth sheen and jim broadbent to be passive protagonists in a way that i kind of don't agree with especially as i have aged especially as i have had you know friendships fall by the wayside or you know i've been both leslie manville and ruth sheen in this movie um i I, that's the circle of life that is the timeline of life from from ruth sheen to leslie manville and back right well and i think there's also a person there was this weird half speak talking out of both sides of people's mouths that like leslie manville is so on another level in this movie so that means she has to be a lead as if there haven't been barn burning supporting performances before i didn't understand what people were on about that what do you have to say about this performance before i get the boot one of my favorites of that year like i said she's a nominee for me in lead actress in an incredibly difficult and competitive lead actress here. So that should say a lot. Saw this movie at the New York Film Festival. I related to her character too much in certain ways where I was like, oh no, oh God. Um, But yeah, she's tremendous in this. Well, that's only because you dress like her. (laughs) That's right. Um, Joe is very tarty. Very. Uh, But yeah, she's she's a worthy nominee in in any category. So I'm excited to see who you uh, scooch out to make room for her in the 2010 lineup. Well, Melissa Leo is the winner. We all know it's a performance I don't necessarily love, especially sure. opposite her fellow nominee and fellow co-star Amy Adams, also in The Fighter. Yes. Helena Bonham Carter in The King's Speech. Yeah. Haley Steinfeld in True Grit, a lead performance. 100%. Especially when you have, like, Haley Steinfeld getting supporting nominations and you can't give one to Leslie Manville. Right. When she, Haley Steinfeld is the protagonist she of sure True is. Grit. She sure is. Uh, and Jackie Weaver in Animal Kingdom. It's a good lineup. I don't love Melissa Leo, but I get it. Yes. 
Helena Bottom Carter, who I don't think is bad, who I don't no. think she is very subtly funny and winning yeah. in that movie. I don't think performances like that should be disregarded for Oscar consideration. Sure. But there's I not enough think, there. There's just not enough. There's there. not much there. Yeah. And it was nice to see her back yes. nominated after about a 12 years, a decade. And to see that she could still do low key <laughs> after yes, after absolutely. years of tim burton movies and whatnot that she still had that option in her arsenal yes yeah but she's my pick to go yeah i agree with that i think that's the right call hey joe hey what it's time to take a call who's that, is, is that a, a button flashing on our little uh on oh. our switchboard we have a call what? Uh, we both have our cardigans on. We've switched into our just little slip-on slippers, Mr. Rogers style. Who's at the door? <laughs> oh, I was going to go Larry King, like, caller, what's your name and from where are you calling? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wait, is this like Howard Stern? Who's the Howard and who's the Robin? I'm... Oh, we are not putting that dynamic upon us. I will, I will not have it. No, absolutely not. I refuse. Let's take the call. Let's, Let's take the call. Hello, this is Oscar Buzz. This is Katie Rich. Uh, believe it or not, I am not here to talk about some uh, himbo guy who you might not be able to tell apart being snubbed for an Oscar, though I really did miss the opportunity to talk about Channing Tatum and Foxcatcher here. Uh, I was super intimidated by this assignment. The history of Oscar snubs is vast, as I think this entire miniseries is proving. Uh, so to make it easier on myself, I decided to narrow in on one uh, Oscar category that is near and dear to my heart, and I know Joe and Chris's as well, which is Best Original Song. There's really no lack of snubs in this category across the years. Um, I did linger for a while on my beloved Drive It Like You Stole It from Sing Street. Um, but I think the broader history of the Oscars is interesting to tell in snubs. And um, I think that when you want to talk about Oscar snubs, it really meant something that say something about where the Oscars were, maybe how they've grown a little bit, maybe how they haven't. You go back to 1989 and do the right thing. I think in no small part, thanks to Spike Lee talking about it, uh, we have all become uh, angry enough as a culture about how poorly that movie was treated by the Oscars. It got a screenplay nomination and a nomination for supporting actor for Danny Aiello. And it was snubbed for Fight the Power, the public enemy song that opens the movie with Rosie Perez dancing. It reoccurs throughout the film. Uh, it's a public enemy song that has really earned its place in the pop culture canon since then. It was a huge hit at the time. And it's so integral to that movie in a way that I think you want all of your original song nominees to be. Um, the Oscars were not ready for Do the Right Thing in many ways back in 1989. Again, we've talked about that a lot. Um, but I think when you look back, that snub has not gotten as much attention as it deserves. Um, and it says a lot about what the Oscars are ready for, about the way the original song category has treated rap over the years, which is, uh, you know, rap and hip hop is the dominant uh, musical pop art form of the last 30 years. It's so rarely nominated. Um, and what a track we might be on if they had nominated Fight the Power back in 1989. So that's my pick. I'm really excited to see everything else you get and all the other snubs that I didn't do or that I didn't even think to do that you guys will cover. Um, happy Snubs Month, everybody. It's a good pick, Chris. Wow. An iconic choice from Katie Rich. I know. Imagine. The most predictable thing that will happen. Imagine. Yeah. Uh, Fight the Power, a fantastic song. I think she's she makes a good point about uh, the fact that the best song category has not been particularly 
uh, overly effusive about hip hop, which is odd considering the last tw- two decades plus of American culture. That makes okay, sense. Okay, well, there's there's like famous hip hop and rap wins, but like broad nominations, no. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's almost as if Katie is very, very smart. It's almost as if she's very perceptive about this kind of thing. Somebody should give her a job uh, uh, making uh, <laughs> important entertainment journalism decisions. Okay, yeah. So interestingly enough, so Katie's choice here dovetails pretty well with my next selection. Um, I just, I tried to get cute and I tried to get, you know, fancier than I needed, than I needed to be. But at some point... On a list of 100 snubs, you have to say, do the right thing for Best Picture in 1989. Period. There's no, there's no getting around it. It was um, the landmark movie of that year. It was one of the great landmark movies of all time. And did, did it make that original AFI list? I literally just watched that whole thing in, in segments over the last few days uh 100 years and 100 movies i don't think so Um, i think it did not i think it's one of the movies that didn't make the initial afi list but then when they did it again a decade later it did so yeah i think you're exactly right it did not make the list at all the first time around it was only number 96 the second time around so even in 2007 when they redid the list it's still way too low (laughs) you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it's uh, you know, maybe now an extra 16 years into the future, it would certainly, I imagine, rank much, much higher. It's also just the fact that, like, this is not a vegetables movie. This is not a movie that, like, you need to right. see it to be, like, literate in culture and that's it. It is a fully engrossing movie. It is visually on point. The ensemble cast is really tremendous. It's funny in moments. It is obviously like shocking and and emotional in moments it is just it's also like a document of a moment in time that is uh that has been ongoing you know what i mean that is a moment in time Mm -hmm. that echoes again and again and again through culture i am certainly not best positioned to talk about it as a cultural artifact for black filmmaking and and yet i imagine there is plenty of things to say about that spike lee obviously one of the great filmmakers of our american century to sound (laughs) pretentious about it um and finally got his oscar for black klansman at long long last in 2018 and probably should have come much 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 sooner kim basinger was right and she should say it uh when she spoke (laughs) out at the oscars about uh the the snubbing of do the right thing she was on track with that one so okay so the other the best picture nominees of 1989 (laughs) let's get into it the winner was driving miss daisy which like sharpened the the sharpened the stick when it came to the do the right thing snub that it would that it that it would be snubbed at all is one thing that it would be snubbed in the year that driving miss daisy wins best picture is almost the reason why this remains one of the most talked about oscar snubs of all time you couldn't (laughs) you couldn't write it in a more stark way right like the the, well and then of course when black klansman is up against green book like yeah 
Like sometimes history we does love feel to like solve racism in cars. I guess the simulation starts to show sometimes, right? Where like you know the yeah. the 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 authors who are pulling the strings behind this thing we call reality. Sometimes the strings start to show. Okay, so other nominees were Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July, Peter Weir's Dead Poets Society, uh, Field of Dreams, which uh, I love, and I know a lot of people. Uh, it becomes a referendum movie on like movies about baseball or like boys or whatever but like fuck it i love that movie i just watched it again the other night <laughs> um <laughs> it's so good and then jim sheridan's my left foot which of course won best actor for daniel Day lewis have seen all these movies some of them more recently than others it's been a minute since i've seen born on the fourth of july and my left foot i flirted with leaving off dead poet society which is a movie that falls apart among under scrutiny i think i think it is a movie that (laughs) that is it's engrossing to watch it is you get wrapped up in it the story um is you know is captivating robin williams is captivating the idea of the sort of very poetic idea of this inspirational teacher who teaches these prep school boys to think beyond just whatever the regimented lessons and you know whatever we've seen this kind of thing a billion times but it is it's a very watchable movie i think driving miss daisy can be less than that (laughs) driving miss daisy is sometimes unbearable to watch i take nothing away from morgan freeman who gives a very good performance in the service of something that doesn't seem to value the fullness of him (laughs) as an actor and sort of places him in a very um programmable sort of you know slot him in and he's the the whatever the the well-meaning and friendly upstanding black man who helps this white woman you know also say take away nothing from the legend status of jessica tandy who was an acting legend yes absolutely and would go on to have an even better performance get nominated in fried green tomatoes like her performance of fried green tomatoes the original blanche dubois ladies and gentlemen like (laughs) yeah yes Love Jessica Tandy. So anyway, uh, yeah, Driving Miss Daisy, I think to 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 complete the loop, right, to complete the historical loop, there's no way I can boot anything but Driving Miss Daisy. It's the only way— Wow, you house-down booted it. It's the—I house-down booted it. It's the only way to sort of uh, uh, heal the timeline rift that happened in 1989 is to uh, take out Driving Miss Daisy, which didn't get a Best Director nomination anyway, so whatever— um, and put in Spike Lee and do the right thing. Can can I say, if this had been mine, yes. I would have Nicole Page Brooks this lineup. Really? Well, I know I you yes, have. I know you don't like Field of Dreams, but there's no way I'm gonna Nicole Page Brooks for that movie alone. Like for if if for if for no I, other yes, reason. I know. But I'm not going to do it. But I also, I think My Left Foot's a good movie. I remember Born on the Fourth of July being a good movie uh, when I saw it, so. I, my left foot being a good movie, but of this lineup, if my pick is my left foot out of this option to like win, sure, which it probably is, sure, yeah, send them all home, yeah, okay, <laughs> all right. What is your next pick? They all knew of the three actors in question and had much fun with the characteristics that they had in common with Sarah. Sarah laughed. They all laughed, and the comparisons became a recurring source of amusement. Was it Tom or Wayne? Or Jeff? You could just take back that one line. Yeah. Was it Tom 
or Wayne or Jeff. So we are uh, jumping forward ahead in recent times. Obviously, I would say many of us uh, in this past Oscar season feel redeemed by this person's Oscar win Mm -hmm. in terms of this situation. But I am talking about 2014 and Best Documentary Feature for Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell. Um, This movie, I think for any of us who have a family tree that branches out closer like a bush um, (laughs) will relate to this. It's... As someone who's had step siblings and half siblings their whole life, yeah. and you know, have people who are very close to me that I have no biological uh, connection to, but they are indeed my family. The way that Sarah Polly captures her own family in this way, I think, speaks to a lot of people who have that type of family experience, but you know, yeah. in you know, Cinema, you know, we don't always necessarily see that or, you know, have those type of relationships. Um, It's this portrait of her mother who died while she was incredibly young. And uh, the question of her, who is her biological father in the movie, which uh, over the course of this documentary in interviewing her close family members and people who knew her mother, she does discover who her birth father is. But it's also this not only tribute to her mother um, and, you know, the intangibility that we have Mm -hmm. as people who exist within a family, because when you're in a family unit, you are not just yourself, the version of you that you believe yourself to be, but you are also the version that this person believes you to be and that person believes you to be. And trying to reconcile all of that... um, in this really beautiful movie that is, you know, she's an incredibly curious filmmaker. She's an incredibly, you know, sort of the way she sort of uh, investigates and, and excavates these family histories in this thing that she's very deeply a part of, and yet comes at it in a way that she's, she's sort of welcomes every new bit of information from this as another piece of, a puzzle that can give her a more complete understanding of the people in her life, which is a really interesting way to approach not only one's own personal history, but like the project of filmmaking in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, this is a movie that uh, meant a lot to me personally to see that. I love that, uh, you know, stretch of it, stretches of it or me just quietly uh, steadily, unbrokenly crying. Sure. Um, and it, it's a great movie. It felt like movie. this was the movie that, for a lot of us, really kind of welcomed Sarah Polly into a fold as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't her first feature, so it was a, you know, interesting note to this person that we thought was in one lane, but then they're in another lane, and now, because they're doing nonfiction, mm-hmm. uh, is in a whole other lane. Yeah. Um, so I think people who love this movie and people who love Take This Waltz, that's why we were so happy uh, for Women Talking to get her, her Oscar this year. Yeah. In terms of this lineup, I think it's a decent lineup. It's kind of a quintessential Oscar lineup. And also, you know, in what people think of a documentary versus 
stories we tell is more like a nonfiction type of thing that, right. you know, Oscar never really goes for it. They didn't not, I mean, like... Do you think they would be more the, apt to go for it now, almost 10 years later, than than that? Right, then. like, and this movie feels like part of a shift of, like, mm-hmm. nonfiction movies that we talk about and get excited about, you mm-hmm. know, are more embraced versus, like, this is a serious subject and this is how we're doing it, talking heads, etc., yeah. etc. Or, like, found footage type of thing. Sure. 20 Feet from Stardom wins. Also, the nominees are The Act of Killing, Cutie and the Boxer, Dirty Wars, and The Square. A different The Square. A different Square. Right, right, right. Um, a much better The Square, in my opinion. Sure. I think The Square is pretty incredible. I think from this lineup, it is not surprising, yet still unconscionable that The Act of Killing didn't win. Um, I loved a, uh, 20 Feet from Stardom, and I understand that I think The Act of Killing is a superior film. Yes. I, yes. I but don't, no surprise whatsoever. And I don't begrudge people wins. voting with the thing that made them feel the best. I walked out of 20 feet from stardom levitating two feet off the ground. I was so happy <laughs> watching that movie, watching those people have their, you know, moment and get yeah. their spotlight. It's so good. Well, great. 20 feet of stardom is like to many people like the kind of poster child for the type of music documentary that it is but i think it does what it does 10 times better than a lot of the movies it gets lumped with sure um my vote to kick out is dirty wars which i would i think is the least interestingly made but it's also you know partly based off of this journalist's book that was already published so it feels like a version of something else it relies on a lot of voiceover it's a little you it's a very it's a serious subject right the wars in the middle east and whatnot it still feels a little vanity project ish <laughs> in a way that like it feels a little recreated to mm-hmm, a lot of the mm-hmm. interviews that happen in the movie. It's yeah. like you would almost prefer it to just be a straight talking head mm-hmm. type of thing mm-hmm. so yeah. that they could m- assemble it more interestingly. Yes. Um, certainly not the worst <laughs> documentary nominee I've ever seen. It's a good lineup. I think in general, it's like it's it's yeah. not a bad lineup at all. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, where are you taking us next? Paper line! What's wrong? Jen! Jen is infected! No! No! Jen! No! Jen, kill it! I'm taking a journey to the year 2003, a year we did a May miniseries on, in fact. Um, although we didn't talk about this movie... Uh, mostly because this kind of movie doesn't really get Oscar buzz, even though I think this is one of the best movies of that year. Uh, I'm talking about the best cinematography category for 2003, Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later, one of my favorite movies of that year. And there are there were angles I could have taken on this movie, right? Maybe Danny Boyle for best director in general, which I think it's a tremendously directed movie. Um there are performances in this movie I think are very good. Killian Murphy and Naomi Harris and Brendan Gleeson. Ultimately, the cinematography, though, this digital cinematography, which in 2003, I was in a mood. I was in the middle of a mood being like, <laughs> digital cinematography is fucking bullshit. It all looks fucking gross and sad and barely like a movie. And it's ugly and I don't like it. Every movie I had seen with digital cinematography, I was like, fuck this shit. 
and Mike Figgis's time code. Fucking <laughs> shit that just like looks like it was shot through a filter of yeah. dog shit. Yeah. And then, so Anthony Don Mantle is the cinematographer on 28 Days Later, would win an Oscar several years later for Slumdog Millionaire. This is the movie he should have won the Oscar for is 28 Days Later. The way he uses the visual aspects of digital to his absolute ultimate advantage in 28 Days Later in a way that unsettles the audience, unmoors the audience. You don't know what has happened to this world that looks like this. Sometimes it looks very, you know, you're looking through the viewfinder in your own little, like, handheld camcorder, right? And so you're looking around, you're looking at a home movie almost, right? But this home movie is of this world that has been absolutely abandoned in the span of a month. And... um and yet the images are can be still so striking. The image of, you know, the abandoned uh, Piccadilly Circus and the image of, you know, Jim waking up in the hospital and that unbelievable shot that I always talk about in this movie, the scene that makes that movie for me, where Brendan Gleeson gets the blood droplet from the crow that falls into his eye, that... The second that happens, your heart, my heart fell out of my body because I was like, you can, you predict the next like five minutes of this movie and you know what's going to happen immediately. And it's so awful. But that shot is so unforgettable, unbelievable. And it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a genuine <laughs> turning point in mm-hmm. cinematography for the way that, you know, we, uh, would go on obviously 28 days later so influential in the horror genre and that's another one where it was like before i mean like definitive for specifically the zombie genre oh yeah like everything zombies has ripped off 28 days later it's before since, especially and after, the visual style yeah it's you exist before 28 days later you exist after 28 days later um are, I I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this movie and and uh, we talked about it in 2003 because we must I'm have. definitely on the record on this podcast of saying everything that Slumdog Millionaire had lumped on it for Danny Boyle sure. and his people should have gone to you know this was the movie to recognize. Yeah. Um, I would also say this is a, a great call specifically for what was going on in digital. Uh, filmmaking because now it's like digital looks like uber polished and sure such, right and like right. digital used to look like shit and it start some of it started uh, with the dogma movement that Anthony Dodd-Mantle was a part of can't roll out the full resume for it now right but like it's so clear that this is somewhat of an elevation or like a next step that he's bringing to the table from what was going on with that movement with like movies by like Lars von Trier and Tom Spinderberg um, that. Yeah. yeah. This feels like using that skill set to a medium forwarding uh, effort immediately before 28 days later. His uh, almost like his last movie before that was Julian Donkey Boy, the Harmony Korine movie. I'm sure um, one of your personal favorites. Uh, <laughs> you know, as with all the the Harmony Korine Uber. Um and then immediately after he does the cinematography for Dogville. You know, <laughs> which is such a um a very specific. But you're right, Thomas Vinterberg and Lars von Trier, and uh, obviously he's stuck with Danny Boyle uh, throughout. He's 
it's a you know tremendously accomplished filmography. I think this is definitely the apex of it. He did the cinematography for Antichrist, which was another movie that people really flipped out for that cinematography. Um, in terms of the nominees that year, so Russell Boyd wins for Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, the the rare non-Return of the King win that year because Return yeah. of the King was not nominated uh, that year. So uh, other nominees were Cesar Charlone for City of God, John Seal for Cold Mountain, Eduardo Serra for Girl with a Pearl Earring, and John Schwartzman for Seabiscuit. So not getting rid of Master and Commander... I'm not going to get rid of Cold Mountain, which for all of its faults, I think is a uh, handsomely photographed movie in a way. And I mean that as a compliment. I don't love City of God as a movie, but I think the cinematography in that movie is pretty striking. And I'm not going to get rid of it. So it comes down to the sort of painterly prettiness of Girl with a Pearl Earring <laughs> uh, for Eduardo Serra. And then Seabiscuit, which I I will grant that movie the degree of difficulty of cinematography on a moving horse. Horse. (laughs) You know what I mean? There is, there's degree of difficulty points that I don't think, I think as in terms of like, what's the least visually memorable of those movies, it's Seabiscuit for me, right? A movie that I don't hate, but I think is, is ultimately fine. I think that's my, the queen right that year where it's just like (laughs) that movie is fine. But I think, there are challenge. There are cinematography challenges in that movie that I that I recognize. Girl with the Pearl Earring is a pretty movie, but I think that's probably where it begins and ends. And don't remember a damn thing about that movie. This is the thing. I liked. I remember liking Scarlett Johansson in that movie, but I liked her better in Lost in Translation that year. So I think I probably bump out Girl with a Pearl Earring just in terms of. I want to give John Schwartzman a little bit of a nod for like, yeah, I imagine it was not easy to mount some of that cinematography for that movie. What do you think? Yeah. No, I agree. That's exactly what I would have done. Yeah. All right. What do you got next? What the hell is that? A dress. Says who? Calvin Klein. So let's talk about the nineties, the period where we're taking (sighs) classic literature Okay, this is maybe a time to say, hey, listeners, if you think we're talking about the 90s a lot, you can blame me. Uh, like, half of my list. All I talk 90s. about in my real life is the 90s. Don't worry about it. I literally sure, 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 watched sure. on YouTube the other day A Year in Rock from 1992. Like, MTV, like, oh, watching old MTV <laughs> programming is, like, what I do to ease my mind after a long and stressful day. So, like, don't worry about it. Spectacular. Yeah. In the 90s, though, there was this, like, it it comes from very different product, but like we talk about a lot of these movies, and we don't always necessarily lump them together. Mm-hmm. But like reimagining classic literature through a modern lens, I think for a lot of people, the pinnacle of that is Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. For me, the pinnacle that I am going to talk about is Amy Heckerling's clueless we're talking best adapted screenplay of 1995 clue i mean clueless is jane austen's emma it's emma right it sure is not uh showing my ass yeah okay good yeah um you know we talk a lot about alicia silverstone's performance i mean i think that's a valid answer there as well i wanted to get some screenplays in here and i think there's a seamlessness to which 
Heckerling recontextualizes Jane Austen that just feels like the most natural thing in the world, the most obvious thing in the world, and finding such like brilliant uh you know humor of her own for the movie that feels both incredibly 1990s and exactly in the vein of Jane Austen. I know we've definitely talked about Brittany Murphy's fucking brilliant performance in this movie. Heckerling won National Board of Review and National Society and was nominated for the Writers Guild and doesn't get yeah. the uh, adapted screenplay nomination and like based on pure that, snobbery like, right like it's just it's pure snobbery that you that... know I, I we're both people who in doing this show don't want to fall into the trap of well the oscars aren't cool enough to do sure that. of course you know we course. don't want it to just be like yes it, they're not cool enough to do that but like it does feel like they are almost close enough to be cool enough to have done this at the time mm-hmm. and like you know, maybe it's just it was too MTV for them. Like it was too, you know, but like this was a critically loved movie too. Election um, came along. I think Clueless walked so Election could run in terms of being an Oscar nominee for a screenplay, <laughs> right? MTV produced Election a few years later, and that does get the screenplay nomination. So maybe the the Academy, uh, you know, they took all his money and they forced Amy Heckerling to ruin her dress. Um, the nominees are Sense and Sensibility wins for Emma Thompson. She doesn't do Jane Austen uh, at her speech at the Oscars. She does it at the Golden Globes. It's brilliant. I think maybe the presence of a literal and flawless Jane Austen adaptation didn't help Heckerling. But think about the narrative possibilities of having both of them as a nominee. Like, well, yeah, but also think it's sure. a very male academy sure, at the same course. time, too. They're not going to give yeah. two Jane Austen things. The other nominees are Apollo 13, uh-huh. Babe, Il Postino, and Leaving Las Vegas. I finally, for the purposes of this miniseries, watched Il Postino. I kind of like Il Postino. <laughs> Did you? Okay. <laughs> I kind of like, you know, especially on a screenplay level. Wow. And like, you know my understanding of the background is it's doing its own version as an adaptation you know not just like a literal you said thank you harvey i'll have some more is what you said when you had when you watched i I would not say that i would say thank you massimo (laughs) troisi and the screenwriters of the film um my boot is leaving las vegas a movie that i've watched since the pandemic and oh I don't know. I haven't watched that movie since like the late 90s, I want to say. Leaving Las Vegas feels kind of quintessentially 90s to me in a way that I don't necessarily mean as a compliment. Like that movie is maybe only interesting if it comes out in the 90s. (laughs) And while I think Cage is very good in it, I, I feel very, at the end of that movie, I feel very Whoopi Goldberg. Okay. Sure. Like, I uh, yeah, there are things to, that are worth celebrating about that movie, and like I know that that is a very rigorous piece of adaptation. Is that my boot? Close, but honestly, and don't tell my husband this. It's his favorite movie. I think my boot is Apollo thirteen <gasps> because. Do okay. I think about the story structure when I think about Apollo 13, a fair. movie that I That's think is fair. really great? Yeah. But, like, Apollo 13 
while, you know, we can talk about movies like Titanic not getting screenplay nominations. Like, if if they'd done it for Apollo 13, I'd get yeah. it maybe even more. Yeah. Because, like, there's some good dialogue in there, and there's maybe some good story structure, but, like, nobody leaves Apollo 13 talking about the script. Well, it does have one of the more memorable, talk about 100 years, 100 quotes. I guarantee you, Houston, we have a problem is on 100 years, 100 quotes. And that's not what he said, so somebody came up with, I don't know, like... <laughs> I'm I'm giving you a little bit of a hard time. I think I I think you make a good you make a good point. And you I think it's Apollo case. 13. Yeah, you make a, a movie that I do think is really great. Yeah, it's a very good movie. Probably should have won Best Picture in terms of uh, what was likely to win Best Picture that year. So it should have been Sense and Sensibility. But Sense and Sensibility was never going to win Best Picture. You know what I mean? Like in terms of like what what had a shot to be yes. Braveheart. Well, and like you know, yeah. Listen, all I'm saying is don't throw your vote away. Vote for the film that's going to beat Braveheart. And uh, if you're still in line to vote for Best Picture in 1995, stay in line. Stay in line. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So uh, we've been booting things. Yes. I think you are about to steal something. Uh-huh. I, I, I thought you were going to say we're going to toot something, but I'm also going to, yeah, steal something. Uh, Katie Rich isn't the only person to bring a Best Original Song nomination to the table. And the one... Imagine us talking about Best Original Song. Uh, yeah, yeah. Get, get used to it, guys. There are some choices that are that are going to be made. Um, and I know this is a song that Katie loves, so maybe this is my uh, my tribute to, to Katie on this episode. Every episode is a tribute to Katie. It's true. Best original song, 2016, from the movie Sing Street. The song is Drive It Like You Stole It. It is, we use the, you use the phrase understood the assignment a lot lately, or uh, not even lately, for the past several years. And it's to the point where it's maybe been devalued as a, as a phrase. But you talk about a song, there's words and music by Gary Clark, uh, I should say. Gary Clark understood the assignment for Drive It Like You Stole It, which is give me a bop that sounds like it could have been conceivably written by a bunch of teenagers that is still very good for, you know, some teenagers that, that is that is impressive, right? That is catchy, that is catchy in this sort of like Britpop kind of way. It fits the genre. It is an earworm like you would not believe. It doesn't, it's an earworm that doesn't make you feel like an asshole for singing it two days later. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's, I compare it to like that thing you do, right? Where like nobody's mm-hmm. mad that that thing you do gets stuck in their head for a week after seeing that movie. And I feel the same way about Sing Street. I watch Sing Street. I'm singing Drive It Like You Stole It for like an entire week and I am not mad about it. That is a fun, uh, song for years and years and years. I would be a little bitch and talk about how they should get rid of the best original song category by the, by the early 2010s, I had had it. <laughs> I was <laughs> done with that category. I was like, we have we have 
past the point where original music in movies is a thing. Nobody's making hits out of, you know, movies anymore. The nominees are mostly terrible. And we have this category has outlived its usefulness. And I, I loved it too much back in the 80s and 90s to see what it had become there. 2016 comes along. 2016 is an embarrassment of riches for good original songs and movies. And they weren't all nominated, but enough of them were in the conversation that year that I was like, 2016 kind of redeemed the idea that we should have a best original song category, even if the ultimate nominees weren't all my faves that year. Drive it like you also one of the years where we have a lot of original songs written by Sia and none of them nominated. One hundred percent. I have talked on this podcast about how Try Everything from Zootopia deserved to be nominated for best original song, but we will. Uh, that was because also- of the rules and the framework that we've set for this, because we can't have two from the same category in the same year. You had to pick and choose. You better believe you both chose... were on my long list. Right. Yes. I think if you're talking about a song that is written in order to enhance the narrative, like this, the narrative of Sing Street depends on Drive It Like You Stole It being the kind of song that it is and as good as it is. So that year, that was the year of La La Land, of course. So that movie gets two nominees. City of Stars wins the snooziest of options from La La Land. And I am not a La La Land hater. I particularly no. like the contributions of Justin Hurwitz in general. Uh, should have won Best Original Score this year. And um, so City of Stars wins. Audition the Fools Who Dream is also nominated. I have no quarrel with Audition the Fools Who Dream. I think... The best tone doesn't sing it well. The best songs from La La Land were the ones that weren't nominated, which are Another Day of Sun and Someone in the Crowd, but that's a whole other story. The Gap commercial songs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, listen, I love a Gap commercial. Talk about 90s Pleasure Center stuff. Like, I will go back and I will watch a compilation of Gap commercials. Um, Can't Stop the Feeling from Trolls, which I know nobody uh, is allowed to like Justin Timberlake anymore. That is a... That's an earworm that you did kind of feel like an asshole for that being stuck in your head a week later. And yet it's trolls, right? Like that's th- that song fulfilled the brief of that movie, too, in the same way that like Pharrell's Happy did a few years before that. Right. So whatever. I I have no problem with Can't Stop the Feeling. It did what it set out to do. Max Martin is an Oscar nominee and that's fine. Um, and then How Far I'll Go from Moana, music and lyrics by Lynn manuel Miranda, should have won, was absolutely the best of that category. Lynn manuel would have an EGOT. We wouldn't have to talk about what's going to happen for him to finally win an EGOT. He's got, he would have had it by then. The one I'm going to get rid of was the other nominee, which is... The song about Clint Eastwood talking to Barack Obama. <laughs> the Empty Chair from... Jim, the James Foley story, which is a documentary, and of course it's a very, you know, incredibly sad story, a tragic story. Uh, music and lyrics by uh, best original song ringer uh, Jay Ralph, who steps in every few years and, and nabs a nomination. To make a song for a documentary. And then also Sting. Uh, uh, how many nominations is for Sting now? Can you look that up while I'm talking? Can you check on IMDb how Ugh, many? I reeled back because they're probably <laughs> all horrible. Um, the thing about The Empty Chair, beyond the fact that it is not a memorable song and I could not for the life of me <laughs> sing any part of it for you right now, it's emblematic of that drought in original song that that made me really hate it, which is the nominating committee reaching for 
whatever the fuck song from some documentary that nobody saw, no offense to Jim, the James Foley story, and nominating it because whatever, the people doing the nomination don't have imagination or recoil from anything that sounds like it was made past the year 2000 or whatever. It's just, it's emblematic. It makes me really, really pessimistic about the taste level of Oscar voters whenever one of these songs gets nominated. And, and it goes, Lord knows I love Diane Warren, but like the RBG song was the same fucking deal, right? Where it's just like, spare me. So I think I would feel a lot better about the original song category as an enterprise if things like The Empty Chair were not nominated. Love and light to J. Ralph, and I hope that J. Ralph has um, a long and prosperous career ahead of him, just maybe no more Oscar nominations. Even though I will say, having said all of that, the song about the climate change documentary from that was sung by Scarlett Johansson, I was like, that's kind of good. Um, anyway. Sting's four Oscar nominations, in addition to The Empty Chair. Yes. My Funny Friend and Me from The Emperor's New Groove. Of course. Until, from Kate and Leopold. Right. And from Cold Mountain, You Will Be My Ain't True, true love. love, of course. Yes. Four nominations okay. for Sting. Sting, Not the, the Ain't True Love. Sting, up until last year, Sting was the Michelle Williams of the original song category. Now he is the... <laughs> Who's a four-time nominee? Willem Dafoe? He's the Willem Dafoe of the original Willem song? Willem is three. Is it just three? Just three. Florida Project? No, it's four. It's Platoon, Shadow of the Vampire, Florida Project. Oh, yeah, it's four. No and mind. and Vincent van Gogh. Listen, if the, fi- if the fifth gets him a win and Yorgos is the one that I'm gets saying. it for him, I'm going to be happy. I'm saying. Um, anyway, anyway. All right, what do you got next? We're still talking about music here, except we're not talking about a music category. We are talking about iconic music cinema. Uh, So listen, concert movies, concert documentaries, if you want to call them docs or nonfiction, whatever, used to be a thing, and now they're kind of not a thing. I feel like for a hot second, Beyonce uh, made that happen with the homecoming talk, which is mm-hmm. uh, essentially behind the scenes and the footage from her Coachella set and talk about a movie that uh, got mentioned for its editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost feel like, you know, homecoming would be a great choice for the editing because of that single shot where they jump and it's between the two sets and it changes costumes, blows your fucking mind yeah. watching it. I have instead chosen for best film editing from 1984, Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense. I like Editing this. by Lisa Day. I like this. Stop Making Sense is, I mean, the definitive, the kind of peak of the concert movie to me and I think a lot of other people in terms of it really is this kind of rapturous experience. Not only making you feel like you're at a concert, but like it's very enveloping cinema and like you see the cameraman throughout the movie mm-hmm. it's like 
it feels like such a participatory experience that like you in the audience of the movie or at your home feel like you're part of the audience. You feel like you're part of the band. You feel like you're part of the people making the movie even because you're like integrated with cameramen. You know, it's this very democratic feeling of like you're all amped on the music together, both in the band, outside of it, and the people creating the movie. And I think that is because of Lisa Day's editing. Um I fucking love Stop Making Sense. It's getting a a restoration and re-release this year. Everybody should go. We should all have dance parties at every cinema that's playing it. I love it. Um Best film editing. Stop making sense. I love this pick. I think this is a very crisp pick, but in a way that, like, this is why, this is this is why I'm glad to have you on this venture with me because uh, <laughs> these are the picks that we need to make for this list. I love. We it. fucking love the Talking Heads. Yeah, man. and like David Byrne, you know, uh, American Utopia is not, uh, you know, Talking Heads. It's just David Byrne, but there's sure. of course a lot of Talking Heads music. It's like yes. it's very interesting that he has multiple of this level of mm-hmm. movie too. Mm-hmm. And American Utopia was shot by Spike Lee, who I would argue is the uh, greatest at you know filming theater and sure. creating his own vision for it. Yeah. Uh, everybody go watch Passing Strange. Um, but yes, Stop Making Sense is. This is also a time where the Oscars weren't. Not to be like they're not cool enough. You know, I don't love those conversations, but like they had to warm up to Demi. Yeah. And it's like still feels like a miracle that the Silence of the Lambs happened. Sure. You know? Yes, it does. This is a real eclectic. This is a real eclectic field. Best film editing in 1984. Uh, The Killing Fields wins. Mm -hmm. Amadeus. The Cotton Club. A Passage to India. And Romancing the Stone. It's a lot going on. I love David Lean, but Passage to India is a fucking snooze. It is kind of a snooze, isn't it? I don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. It is. No. It, yeah. That's yeah. that's my my pick for the boot. I'm sure as hell not booting Amadeus. The Killing Fields, which is like very much a movie of its time, does mm-hmm. have a rhythm to it. Romancing the Stone. I think that's a fucking cool nomination, especially yes. that opening sequence. Yeah. Like is really precisely more, assembled more comedies i know it was nominated probably more for its adventure aspects than its comedies but more comedy should mm-hmm. be nominated for best editing like editing is so crucial to the success of a comedy right yeah. right and the cotton club you know because that's a somewhat troubled uh production and has had since like yeah. you know recuts of it uh, I think a lot of people might jump to that simply based off of its reputation, but that movie's fine. Like, <laughs> yeah. So you're booting a passage to India. I am. All right. Well done. I have been awake for almost 60 hours. I'm tired and I'm dirty. I've been from Chicago to Paris to Dallas to... Where the hell am I? Scranton. I am trying to get home to my eight-year-old son. And now that I'm this close, you're telling me it's hopeless. Oh, I'm sorry. No. No, 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 no way. This is Christmas! The season of perpetual hope. Ma'am, if... And I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike. If it costs me everything I own. If I have to sell my soul to the devil himself. I am going to get home to my son. All right, kiddos. Uh, this is this is a fun one for me. This one is a... Uh, I'm, I'm leaping away from the bounds of plausibility for my next selection. Um... 1990 Best Supporting Actress. A pretty good year for Best Supporting Actress, I should say. So it's uh, 
Um, we'll get to the who I'm snubbing in a second, or who I'm who I'm pulling from the nominations uh, in a second. So, this is a movie I watch every year. This is a movie that every time I watch it, this particular performance gets better and better. I have stopped feeling like this is me being a troll and me being uh, a little a little scamp about this. And every time I see this movie now. I'm like, this is textbook, fantastic comedic acting. This is Catherine O'Hara in a little movie called Home Alone. And I, yes, I am serious. She should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress. <laughs> Everything else that's going on with Home Alone, right? The, you know, the Macaulay Culkin of it all, the the pranks and the, you know, the slapsticky Looney Tunes violence. Every, okay, here's the thing that I find funny is people getting overly moralistic about, like, Home Alone is so violent. He really, like, those guys really, they they could have yeah, died. Yeah, that's why it's funny. It's like, yeah, it's a fucking <laughs> Looney Tunes cartoon. Like, get a fucking life, people. Jesus H. Christ. Um, but anyway, aside from all of that, there is a subplot going on where Catherine O'Hara is trying to get home to the son that she accidentally left at home. And of course, the thing that everybody remembers, he's on the plane and she goes, Kevin, you know what I mean? And that, but like, it keeps going on from there. The plane lands in Paris. She's on the horn with local cops. Uh, she, she has to wheedle her way past Hope Davis and an old couple with a box of dangly earrings and, and, you know, the rent a car, uh, desk at whatever airport, Dallas, Fort Worth or whatever the fuck. And then ultimately gets a ride from John Candy and a kindly group of polka singers in a budget. One of the greatest mini romantic comedies because you kind of want them to fuck. This is the thing that I'm saying is every single one of those moments has a scene where Catherine O'Hara is fucking brilliant. When she's on the phone with the cops, she's so funny when she's on yelling at Hope Davis when she's trying to make the deal. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When she's yelling at Obdavis, Madame, there's, there's, there's nothing I can do. Obdavis, um, the old couple, right? The uh, and then the right. She has lots of earrings, dangly ones. Oh, y- you don't want to get me quoting every line from Home Alone because I can do it. Um, <laughs> but then, right, she's in the she, the scene with her and John Candy, and it's like a couple scenes, right? They they revisit a couple times, and like these are two obviously, you know. SCTV, the two go back a ways. Their comedic chemistry has been refined to a sharp point. And they just riff off of each other in this van talking about, and she reacts to him and he reacts to her. And it's so, the comedy there is so pure and so, um, you know, there's nothing... There's no uh, there's no empty calories to it, right? It's just fun and loose. And on top of all of that, then, she has this really beautiful emotional reunion with Macaulay Culkin at the end where she makes it home. And she sells she sells the emotional core of that movie. And she also mm-hmm. provides the uh, non-slapstick division all the funniest moments of that movie it talk to any mother about that scene mm-hmm. when she come when she comes back to the house and sees yeah. this beautiful home and like yeah I, i'm sure it's going to unpack a can of worms for that mother and it's because of Catherine o'hara's performance that scene particularly that's like 
an impossible task yeah. to do as an actor, and she like and like not be corny, not be schmaltzy, yeah. and I think she does it so beautifully. We talk all the time about how the Oscars don't honor comedy enough, and this is the it's a perfect example, and it's not one you would think of because Home Alone is not thought of as a even though it is an Oscar nominee, it's not thought of as a respectable movie. But well, and it's also interesting because it is a year where comedy performance won. Uh, that is true. Whoopi for Ghost. But it's a comedy performance in a movie that is a kind of overwrought drama, too. You know what I mean? Like, it's comedy. Yeah, Ghost is a bad movie with an incredible Whoopi But a tremendously watchable movie. Like, there's, you know, it's it's a little junk foodie in terms of the Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore of it all. But, like, it's so watchable. Oh, my goodness. Um, yes. Yeah, so, anyway, so the nominees that year, Whoopi wins for Ghost, Annette Benning for The Grifters, Lorraine Bracco for Goodfellas, Diane Ladd in a bonkers nomination for Wild at Heart. Absolutely insane that she's nominated for that movie, Absolutely and I insane. love it. Uh, and then Mary McDonald for Dances with Wolves. I love all of these actors. I think they all give, at worst, good performances. I'm still going to boot Mary McDonald for Dances with Wolves. I don't hate Dances with Wolves. I've talked about this on another podcast recently. I don't hate this movie. I It has problems. <laughs> I don't even think the Mary McDonald character is particularly problematic, but of everybody in this category, like Whoopi's unimpeachable. Lorraine Bracco is tremendous. I can't take away that Diane Ladd performance. The history books need it. And Annette Benning, her first ever Oscar nomination for the Grifters, Stephen Frears, once again, <laughs> shows up. Um She's good. She's crackling in that role. And Mary McDonald will get nominated a couple years after this for Passion Fish, a tremendous performance. A performance that we are both definitely way more passionate about. Uh, I very recently talked about that on the podcast Like It's 1992 podcast. If you want to go and find that episode, I had a great time talking to Phyllis Gove and Emily St. James about that. And um, But yeah, Mary McDonald and Dances with Wolves is, is number five. She's riding number five in this one, I would say. Amazing. Yeah. All right. What you got next? We talk a lot about love, but we don't feel it a lot. So perhaps this marathon will open up some doors. So this is the furthest back that we're going this episode. Yes. We'll go further back in episodes to come. Yes. Uh, when we talk about Oscars and we talk about, you know, essentially cringe pre-Weinstein and like, mm-hmm. you know, the way that there was a shift there, there's a reason why we don't do older movies on this podcast because it's an entirely different ecosystem. Mm. I think secretively Michael Schulman's book Oscar Wars helps kind of bolster this idea for our listeners because when you listen to a lot of those pre-80s and 90s or when you read those chapters, it's like kind of barely about the Oscars in those chapters because it's more just about other things. I'm going to throw out for best picture in 1969 one of my absolute favorite movies that for the type of cultural touchstone that it was i am also very surprised it did not get best picture traction wasn't even nominated for musical or comedy best picture at the globes that year which is really shocking to me paul mazursky's bob and carol and ted and alice one of my fucking favorite movies yeah i mean like notorious for the obvious like couple swapping you know post you know sexual liberation or i guess mid sexual liberation where 
the sexual liberation has reached married couple aged people in terms of their sexual exploration. And that's the avenue that this movie like gets you in the theater to see. It puts butts in seats and that's where the movie kind of begins. But what I think ultimately the movie kind of evolves in is this almost generational study, you know, because they're kind of they are an age of people that are caught between the young people going through the actual sexual revolution and free love and all of that and between their parents' generation that told them what a marriage is supposed to be, what men and women are supposed to be, what, you know, the nuclear unit and how marriages function. And what this movie ultimately becomes is couples who are figuring out their own rule book in, you know, a time that they don't have any type of uh, reinforcement. Yeah. They are on their own to figure out how to make their marriages work, you know, and you can talk about the sexual politics of it too, but it's, I think, ultimately about uh, people who love each other figuring out what to do to, yeah. you know, be together, what their, you know, love is going to be. And I think it remains even almost 60 years later, incredibly relevant and i think it is my favorite say almost 60 years later like that and just not prepare me to like i I feel dizzy now that's such a long time that's if you want to feel dizzy watch the ending of this movie my favorite movie ending of all time as well i it's nominated for uh two supporting oscars for diane cannon and elliot gould incredible nominations who's the who's the who's the performance of the movie who gives the the best performance in the movie diane cannon yeah um it's been on my list forever i still haven't seen it i i need to at some point see this movie well then i shan't spoil the uh the the euphoria of the end of that movie um for you paul mazursky would eventually well two years later a few years later get nominated for best picture for an unmarried woman another one of my favorite movies Mm -hmm. that you know captures uh you know a a very specific generational moment uh in beautiful ways that i think are bigger than people that the movie approaches it in a bigger way than people talk about the movie about um and so this is also kind of a pivotal turning point uh-huh. year for the Oscars. Midnight Cowboy is the Best Picture winner, you know, famously the first X-rated uh, movie, right. even though it eventually would be rated R. The other nominees are Anne of a Thousand Days, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Hello, Dolly, and Costa Zavros' Z. Yes. Have you ever seen Anne of a Thousand Days? I have not. I think a lot of people would throw the boot here to Hello, Dolly. <laughs> I think it's pretty standard musical fare. Sure. Anne of a Thousand Days, more like Anne of a Thousand Fucking Hours oh, no. Long. It is quintessential, like, and Anne of a Thousand Days also, if you look into its Oscar story, is, you know, yeah. it's one of the first movies pegged with campaigning. You know, it's oh. a movie that they gave away filet mignon and champagne <laughs> at screenings of it. You know, it's targeted as, you know, one of the first movies to do a campaign like that. Sure. And you see why they would dog that movie for it, because the movie is fucking boring. Uh, it's, I mean, Jean-Vierre Bujold is the lead and was nominated for it, and she's pretty good. Yeah. 
and it's um, Richard Burton. But like, there are so many movies in this time and yeah. the two decades prior that are just these really, really boring costume dramas. Yeah. That I think costume drama sort of attained a little bit of a uh, sort of a dirty word for a while. When people yeah. turn their nose at the and say the word costume drama, yeah. this is the movie they mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Um, that's a really good, uh, gives me a lot to think about because the only movies from that best picture lineup that I've seen are Midnight Cowboy and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I haven't even seen the Hello Dolly movie, although I have seen the stage show. Um, so it gives me a lot to, to throw on my list and watch. Should we take another phone call from another special (gasps) guest? Joe, who's at the door? (laughs) Oh, wait, are we doing this every time? Wait a second. Maybe. Maybe I'll change it Who's every episode. The door? <laughs> Who's here? Uh, ding dong, Lost Culture. No, that's that's the wrong podcast. Um. Anyway, uh, let's let's get a let's get a dispatch from the field from one of our valued. Guests. We need like Glenn Close and Donald Sutherland. Oh my uh, God! Yes, we do. Uh, yes. Ushering these people in. All right. Good evening, distinguished panel of judges, and by judges I mean this had Oscar buzz listeners. Chris File and Joe Reed. Uh, my name is Kevin O'Keefe, and I am honored to be part of the 100 Years 100 Snubs series. As the resident Jessica Chastan of the podcast, I think my selection for what I would put in is uh, going to come as no surprise. I'm going to be talking about the 2017 Best Actress race and the exclusion of one fiery redhead currently starring on Broadway, um, Jessica Chastain for Molly's Game. Um, I think this is one of her best performances. I also think, as we talked about during the Miss Sloan episode, um, I would highly recommend, highly recommend anyone who has not listened, go back and listen to that, because we had a lot of fun recording that one, um, as well as, I think I was also on the uh, Most Violent Year episode. Can't wait to come back for yet another journey into Miss Chastain's oeuvre. Anyway, um, as we talked about in the Miss Sloan episode, Miss Sloan and Molly's game sort of exist in this same sphere of Jessica Chastain acting, where she was really, like, focused, galvanized, um, very Sorkin-y in both, even if Aaron Sorkin technically only wrote one Molly's game, although you never believe it. Um, I was actually hoping to be able to talk about Molly's game on the podcast until we realized that it actually got a best adapted screenplay nomination uh, for Sorkin, so we wouldn't be able to. But uh, my love for the performance continues unabated. I think it's some of her most fun work. I think it's it's really interesting to see her in this particular mold, and I would have loved to see her be encouraged to continue to work in this particular mold. And instead, it feels like she's fallen into a couple different traps. Um, I can't say that I've seen Ava. Um, I can't say that I will be seeing Ava, but from what I can tell of Ava, as well as a lot of her recent work, um, other than the beloved Eyes of Tammy Faye, which I was so happy she eventually won her Oscar for, um, I feel like she's she's drifted a bit from the things that I really like about her. The George and Tammy series seems to be more in line with the with what she's been doing recently. Congratulations on that SAG award, Jess. Um, thank you for, uh, thank you for showing up for it, uh, despite your, <laughs> despite your theatrical engagements. Anyway, yeah, I, I would really have liked to have seen her nominated for that early. It's easier to understand. It's, it's easier to feel good about now 
considering she didn't wind up uh, Oscarless that she won for Tammy Faye. Um, but I still think she was very deserving for it. She wouldn't have been my winner that year, but I still think she would have. She should have been included. Um, I actually would throw out. Uh, part of this was. Uh, being asked to remove someone from the category if you're going to add someone. And I would actually throw out that year's winner, Frances McDormand, for three billboards over, or outside Ebbing, Missouri, not over Ebbing, Missouri. <laughs> Bullets over Broadway, billboards over Missouri. Um, yeah, I would throw her out for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, I really don't like that film. Um, I don't think Frances is particularly great in it. And Frances would win just a couple years later for Nomadland, both in Best Actress and and for producing the film. So she's fine. She's got plenty of opportunities. Um, I'm not robbing anything major from Frances. I think we could go on with her out without her getting even a nomination for that. She was my fifth of five in that category pretty easily. Um, and I would slot Jess in there instead. In terms of who would win, I would probably give it to Meryl Streep for The Post. Um, but I also think there's a world in which it's a good thing that Saoirse Ronan has an Oscar, speaking of the ways in which an Oscar nomination or Oscar itself can affect someone's career trajectory positively. I think it would be great to see um, Sersha with one, so uh, she could get it for Lady Bird as well. But my personal pick is probably Meryl in the post and that captain. Anyway, I uh, had so much fun thinking about this. Uh, thank you to Joe and Chris for inviting me, and I can't wait to hear what everybody else comes up with for, comes up with for this miniseries. All right. Wow, the Chastan has logged back in. <laughs> and I am walking out the back of the Scotiabank Theater and hustling back in to do my curtain call. <laughs> um, that is a joke for... Uh, three people. I was going to say, not a lot of people, but the ones who get it will really get it. Um, I love Jessica Chastain and Molly's Game. That is a... Um, Kevin, thank you for staying true to the brand. We, yes. We love this. It's not necessarily a junk food performance, but it is a uh, high-carb performance is what I Who like doesn't want to watch this. Jessica Chastain play a Kardashian? I mean... That is a... Uh, you <laughs> you watch that movie, and it's just entertainment from beginning to end. And she's uh, watching... I think one of the things that... Uh, for as embattled as Sorkin can be as a screenwriter and a filmmaker, I think he gets the exhilaration of watching somebody be very good at their job. <laughs> and she's so good at setting up that poker empire and, and is so believable in that role. Oh, I love her. Chastain is a perfect performer for Sorkin too. I think she, she will know how to digest all of that and give you the drama of Sorkin, but also make it seem like something an actual human being would say. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. Um, good pick by Kevin. I guess we're moving into mine. Yeah. What do you have next? We are shot so this is a sort of particular and peculiar Oscar story that I don't think we've really ever talked about to any degree of length. Um, the Zhang Yimou film Hero, which is one of the more one of the more curious Oscar journeys in recent memory, where it is uh, China's submission for Best Foreign Language Film for 1992, gets nominated, loses to Nowhere in Africa, um, and 
is acquired by Miramax. Uh, notoriously, one of the most notorious sort of Harvey Weinstein does not do right by a filmmaker uh, stories is he acquires Hero, pitches eight kinds of fits about recutting it and and doing you know, whatever changes he wants to make to it before he will release it in the United States. And essentially, in a fit of peak, sits on it for two years. And for those two years, people were constantly being like, when are we going to get Hero? This was back at a time where, like, the foreign language films were not a guarantee to be able to be seen. You know, there were foreign language films that just were not available to be seen in the United States. And so, so many people were so excited to see this movie and couldn't for years. I even feel like a trailer was put out for that movie, like, early, and then the release date was pulled, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Um, This is a movie we could abs... Well, we can't because it was a foreign language film nominee. But then when it gets released in the United States and is eligible through those odd little rules where... uh, a foreign language nomination does not preclude you from getting nominations in the year that you are actually released in the United States. So it's see released the in the aforementioned City of God. See the aforementioned City of God. So it's released in 2004. By the time it gets released, it's really dazzling. This is a really dazzling movie. Jet Li uh, stars uh, as a long, like talk about like all star cast. Zhang Yimou is directing. Jet Li, Tony Leung, Maggie Chung. Donnie Yen, Zhang Ziyi, like the cast fucking rules. This is another movie where I really debated as to what nomination I wanted to give this one. So it doesn't get any nominations from the year 2004 when it comes out. Uh, I thought about director for Zhang Yimou. I thought about cinematography for Christopher Doyle, who, you know, this fantastic career doing largely cinematography for Wong Kar Wai's films, never nominated. And, and being a known monster. Oh, is that true? I didn't realize yes. that. Oh, well, then that's, I feel even better about the choice that I'm making now in this. Um, uh, instead, I chose Best Costume Design for Hero for costume designer Emmy Wada. And I'm hoping I'm pronouncing all of that correctly, a uh, costume designer for film, but also ballet. She did a lot of uh, um, uh, ballet costume design, died very recently, died at the age of 84 in 2021, was nominated, was uh, won the Academy Award in 1985 for costume design for Akira Kurosawa's Ron. So like this is yeah. a, um, a, a an honored cin- uh, costume designer. And yet, the costumes in Hero. Have you seen Hero? Is that a movie you've seen? Ages ago. Sure. But yes, you are you are right to include it. The the costume story in that movie is every fight has a different color palette. And it's this saturated one color. You've got the green fight and you've got the red fight and you've got the blue fight and you've got the white fight. You know what I mean? Like everything is um these very sort of like monochromatic saturated like in your face sort of assault of color on your brain and it's overwhelming intentionally so the costumes are these very flowy everything's motion right everything is is um fighting clothes right so it's everything that like looks beautiful swirling around in this swirl of fabric as everybody's jumping and fighting and whatever um and also there are like uh armored soldiers in certain scenes and so there's a lot of you know there's a lot to do costume wise in this movie um it looks 
stunning. I think hand-in-hand uh, hand with the cinematography and with Zhang Yimou's direction, it creates these really, really unforgettable scenes. And I think just in general, Hero deserved, at the very least, a run at Crafts nominations. And I think part of the narrative of Harvey Weinstein sort of exhausting everybody on the subject of this movie is people were kind of ready to move on. And by the time that Hero comes out, Zhang Yimou's next movie, House of Flying Daggers, is nominated and, or is, is released in 2004. And that does get nominations for cinematography. And that's it. So that also doesn't get nominated for the costume design, even though that's another one where uh, uh, these costumes are intricate. You know what I mean? Like incredibly complicated and stunning. And, you know, this is another Zhang Ziyi movie and she looks tremendous. And um, so this is almost a two-for-one Emmy Wada uh, costumes for, you can give it to, to Hero, you can give it to House of Flying Daggers. I went with Hero because that's the one that was more overall sort of snubbed and wronged. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite just l- movies to look at from the aughts. It's just really, really tremendous. So that year, in costume design, your nominees are Sandy Powell wins for The Aviator. Sandy Powell bodying the costume design <laughs> category throughout the years <laughs> is not a uh is not a rare thing. Uh, Colleen Atwood's nominated for Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Alexandra Byrne is nominated for Finding Neverland. Sharon Davis for Ray. Bob Ringwood for Troy. So in terms of costumes, um Troy put Brad Pitt in a miniskirt, so I'm not gonna quarrel with anything about Troy. Troy um, also made the great editorial decision to put him in note clothes. That's true. A fine, fine decision that there. Thank you, Wolfgang Peterson. Um, Colleen Atwood for Lemony Snake is a series of unfortunate events. That's if you're going to recognize anything for that movie, it's costumes and art direction, right? Like that's, um, there's a lot going on there. Sandy Powell, aviator costumes are really, really fantastic, actually. Like just lots going on. So, I think it comes down to Ray and Finding Neverland. Ray, I struggle to sort of come up with any sort of standout costume decision. There are the Raylettes, of course, have, you know, their cute little performance outfits or whatever, which are not bad. Um, Ultimately, it comes down to I fucking hate Finding Neverland, and I would like it to have as few nominations as possible. And to defend the Ray nomination, there's a lot of era specificity there yeah, that really sure. you know adds to that movie. I think not bad costumes. There are probably twenty movies that I think have more impressive costumes from 2004 than Ray. Um, but I, I, all respect to Alexandra Byrne. Um, I don't want Finding Neverland to have nominations, so I'm getting rid of that one. Um, uh, what's your next one? Well, if you don't go and see it, well, I will. And I'll tell her I'm you. And I'll do terrible things to her. Listen. <laughs> if Chris Vile's going to do one thing, uh-huh. he's going to talk about this filmmaker. He's going to say that it is a travesty that this filmmaker remains entirely unnominated. Right. 
by the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences. Right. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the master, David Cronenberg. Everyone's favorite Canadian. I mean, I have a lot of favorite Canadians. <laughs> Maybe my favorite male Canadian. Okay, all right. We can say that. We can that. say that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, sorry, no one, no one's going above. Uh, so it's like okay, favorite Canadians: Celine Dion, sure. Friend and former guest Anita Steinberg, sure. David, David Cronenberg. Okay. <laughs> Dream plot uh, rotation. <laughs> Look, there's a lot of Cronenbergs you could talk about. There's You, again, fall into that trap of, well, the Academy's not cool enough to do that choice. Right. I think, yeah, I, I think my number one Cronenberg movie, my number one, this is a Cronenbergian vision. This sells you on who he is. There's other movies you could maybe throw out there, but I'm talking about the best director race of 1988. We're talking about... Dead Ringers. Yes. By the time... Dead Ringers was a movie I thought a lot about how to get it in there. Uh, you could say Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons goes and wins a year later and thanks Cronenberg in his speech. Yes. that it's It remains the best Jeremy Irons performance. By now, when this airs, listeners can go and watch Rachel Weiss do... I was going to say, I just watched I, that entire you've series. You've seen the episodes. I have not had I've just reviewed it. it. Yeah. And um, it made me want to watch the movie. Like, it's a good show, and I think it's a well-directed show that ultimately I'm like, this would be better as a movie. And then I'm like, oh, wait, there is a movie. Like, that's, you know, it's the one of those things. It's a leveling up for Cronenberg at this point, but I think it's also him at a career point really defining who he is as an artist and mm-hmm. how his career would continue to proceed, the type of risks he would continue to proceed, mm-hmm. the immaculate, just like complete design and conception of this movie mm-hmm. um, shows why he is a master. Maybe not a master for everyone who does not make movies that everyone will love, but I think he makes movies that everyone will respond to it it's well, impossible to not respond to this movie and the wild thing about dead ringers was this was cronenberg coming down to earth a little bit from it's a studio movie <laughs> it's it's him after videodrome and after the fly and after fly you know, was a big hit sure fly was a big hit but like it's like and an oscar nominee let me do something that is a little bit less body parts sort of falling off of people and holes opening up in the center cavity of people and like whatever like this is comparatively a norm a normie movie for david Cronenberg. but uh, on the surface absolutely relatively considering psychology of this movie which is you know where i think he you know the the uh the headline is the gore or the violence of some of his movies yeah. but the actual upsetting thing and the thing i think that lingers is the psychology yes and yeah. you know the fly had already won an oscar this is a studio movie but also it's not a year that the oscars would have been too cool to have you know put their neck out there for a really you know right. controversy courting movie because this is the year or you know a movie that's you know up its own creek this is the year they nominate Scorsese for Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. There's obviously, you know, a lot that goes into it. And that movie wa- received a really, really um, 
uh, notoriously heated reception from audiences and uh, Christians specifically that you could see why the Academy would want to go and stick its neck out for Scorsese. Yes. Yes. But uh, it is the Cronenberg pick for me. The other nominees that year are Barry Levinson wins for Rain Man. Charles Crichton gets a comedy nomination for A Fish Called Wanda. Mike Nichols also gets a comedy nomination for Working Girl. Neither of those are Best Picture nominees. Um, and Alan Parker for Mississippi Burning, which is, I can at least stand by that Alan Parker nomination because that's a movie that is so clearly elevated by its directorial vision. And you can see the significantly weaker yeah. version of the movie that's directed by someone else yeah. so clearly in your mind. Rob Reiner's I mean, Ghost I... of Mississippi. Oh, right. <laughs> um this is a house down boots situation. Barry Levinson winning oh. for Rain Man is absurd to me. Even in this, I mean, in this lineup, uh, Rain Man. First of all, this is the Alan Carr Oscars we're talking about here, and you're not going to get some weird shit like Cronenberg in there. I rest my case. Wait, but this is also, the Alan Carr Oscars. Explain that. Okay, so Alan Carr was notorious gay man, producer of many gay sex parties and the motion picture Grease. He does the Oscars that got, like, some of the... Like, it killed his career. Worst Oscar reviews ever. It had the whole Rob Lowe, uh, Snow White situation that was, like, his baby. And, like, they were... These were the Oscars that were essentially accused of being too gay. And... Oh, boy. Perry Levinson winning for Rain Man, which Rain Man is also, like, it's, like, in many ways, the peak of 80s Oscar schmaltz. But, like, why does that movie need a directing Oscar? Well, because it's winning Best Picture. is Because it's winning Best Picture, essentially. Which is, like, I think we have, like, the Academy has finally broken of that mindset in recent years, which I actually think is a good thing even though i don't always love how it plays out but why does barry levinson have a directing oscar for rain man well like if you get to the actual directing of it yeah 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 rain man is a movie that i haven't seen in several decades so i can't speak on it now but yeah i mean i think that's that's a very supportable conclusion you come to I'm going to take us to the year 2012. My first of what will prove to be a few best original score nominations. I'm going to I'm going to correct in the public record. So 2012 was a really fantastic year for original scores. Only some of them made it into the Oscar lineup. This is actually a year where there are two movies I would put into the score category. Uh, so I had to make a decision <laughs> and, between two of my favorite scores of the last 25 years, two scores that I listen to to this day. Um, one of them, the one that got the boot for me was the 
Cloud Atlas score, which is Tom Tickver and oh god, it's um You not giving something to Cloud Atlas, I think speaks to the level of your admiration <laughs> for something. I mean, yes is the thing. Give me a mm-hmm. second. That's uh it's Johnny Climac and Tom Tickver and uh, I want Ben Wishaw. <laughs> ben Wishaw. If only, man. Um Reinhold Heil is the third one. Okay, so love that score. Listen to it constantly. Get, catch me on a different day, and that's the one that I'm putting into the lineup. But the one in, I am putting in there at this very moment is the you original the right score one. for Beasts of the Southern Wild from uh, director Ben Zeitlin and composer Dan Romer. It Beasts of the Southern Wild is a movie I've not revisited since 2012. I'm a little bit trepidatious, too, because... It's a movie that I feel like I could revisit it and maybe find it a little precious or a little condescending or a little something, maybe. And and I can, you know, I can see a world in which I like it less than I did the first time around. But I was really taken with it the first time around. And one of the things that lingered the longest was this original score. Um, very, you know, beautiful and rousing. It sort of has a main... Uh, theme once there was a hush puppy that is sort of the central mm-hmm. standout track from that that I listen to all the time. It's great like walking music. It's very sort of like it comes to this like beautiful crescendo and um almost sort of uh uh like a children's sounds like a children's parade a little bit when it gets to the crescendo of that movie, which I really love. Uh Dan Romer is a composer who is not it has not saturated the film world in terms of like, it's not like we get a new Dan Romer score every year or whatever. He most recently did the score for HBO's station 11 uh, adaptation. Mm-hmm. That is one of the most gorgeous TV scores I've heard in forever. Uh, so much of that show was beautiful and that score really, really contributed. So yeah, I really, um, you said of the two, you would have gone this way as well between Cloud Atlas Absolutely. and Beasts. No question. Um, it's really very difficult. shocking to me that like this did this score didn't register yes. throughout the season in the way that you know Beasts of the Southern Wild. It's a Best Picture was, nominee. Also, yeah, like my. It God. feels like an avenue that they could have gotten a craft nomination very easily. So it makes you wonder if they didn't push for it. Yeah, I tried to even go back and be like, is there an eligi- eligibility issue here? Because it's two of them, and because it's yeah. I mean, I don't. I, I couldn't find any right. But it's also over a decade old, and Those, the Wayback Machine is being even less and less of our friends anymore. The music um, had such mercurial. The music branch had such mercur- mercurial rules that seemed to change every year in terms of eligibility and and whatnot in both score and song. So I could see that the nominees that year, uh, Life of Pi wins. Michael Dana's uh, score from Life of Pi, which I actually think is very good. I liked Life of Pi. I think quite a bit more than a lot of critics uh, maybe did at the time. A lot of critics really liked it, but I think a lot of sort of younger, cooler critics were like, yeah, Life of Pi. Um, Dario Marianelli's score for Anna Karenina, which is very good. John Williams for Lincoln. Thomas Newman for Skyfall, which in some ways it's like, yeah, it sounds like a James Bond score. But in other ways, I think Newman does some good things with it. And then Alexandre Desplat for Argo, which I remember at the time being like, because Desplat hadn't won yet. And... Mm-hmm. 
I was like, this could be his win. Argo's going to probably win Best Picture. Nothing else seems to have really stood out as a score. Why not? Ultimately, Life of Pi wins. I do think Argo's the one I boot uh, in terms of even among like John Williams fatigue, Lincoln is a pretty distinctive score. Um, yeah. and, and I think is one of his better ones of the last, say, 20 years or so. Um, like I said, I think Skyfall does some interesting things within the James Bond sort of coloring box. Coloring box is a term, right? Um, if I have a ballot, I'm giving it to Anna Karenina. Oh, I love Anna Karenina's score. I love Marianelli. I know Marianelli and Joe Wright are a tremendous team together. So yeah, I think I'm getting rid of Argo. Fabulous. All right. What do you got? What am I going to do? can't go out there this way. <laughs> How can I go out there this way? <laughs> so here's an example of one that we've talked about semi-recently yeah. uh, in a previous episode, but the episode is not for this the nominate for the snub that I yeah. am throwing on the list. Uh, it's Best Sporting Actress, 1998, Joan Allen in Pleasantville. Yeah. We talked about this on our Upside of Anger episode. You can go back and listen to that. But I do think this is genuinely shocking. She wasn't nominated for it. I get that there were somewhat middling feelings about Pleasantville. And it got, you know, some craft nominations. The performance is so great. It is... I mean, you know, sexual awakening cinema. It is Mm -hmm. horny cinema. Mm -hmm. Um, But she won Critics' Choice in L.A. Film Critics and doesn't get a nomination. Very uh, very shocking. Performance I love. I do love Pleasantville and all of its schmaltz and obvious metaphor. Yeah. Good movie. Excellent performance. Probably should be Joan Allen's Oscar. Yeah. And uh, the nominees that year, Judi Dench wins for Shakespeare in Love. Kathy Bates for Primary Colors, Brenda Blethyn in Little Voice, Rachel Griffiths in Hillary and Jackie. Finally watch that Hillary and Jackie for this. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. It is about real life musicians. <laughs> How did you like it? Rachel Griffiths plays the flute. <laughs> Emily Watson plays the cello. Uh-huh. All right. Those two, those two acting nominations, I can endorse it. Sure, I stand. That's that's fine. Sure. And then Lynn Redgrave for Gods and Monsters. Who are you? A movie I do defend and love. Yeah, but she's my boot. She's the cartooniest one in that movie. It is somewhat incongruous with the movie. I I really don't love Little Voice in a way that I was kind of surprised by hating. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, Brenda Blethyn is good in the movie. She would maybe be my backup boot. Is it another one of those Brenda Blethyn, like, sweetie sort of performances? Is that sort sweetheart. of... Yeah. You know, it's just you, sweetheart. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just life, life is so, so hard, sweetheart. Right, it's one of those. Yeah. Sweetheart. Um, <laughs> that... Um, <laughs> Who beat her for Secrets and Lies? Oh, Frances McDormand. Frances and Fargo. Frances McDormand has three acting Oscars. But that's I, her best I, one. I don't want to take it away it's from her. It's her best Marge, one. But Frances McDormand might be in rightful possession of Brenda Blethyn's acting Oscar. No. I just got to maybe possibly say it. Don't kill Frances me. or Fargo is one of my favorite Oscar ones of all time. I can't. Yeah, I'm Brenda Blethyn and Secrets and Lies is just like a holy fucking shit sure. performance. Sure. Though. Um, it is a little bit of a sweet art performance, yeah. but it... um. Yeah. I, I don't like Little Voice. I think it's a mean fucking movie. Yeah, okay. Um, 
But Lynn Red grabs my boot. Uh, Joan Allen should have won for Pleasantville. Go back and listen to our Upside of Anger. We talk a, a, more about uh, Joan Allen uh, in her 90s run. I recently, bu- Searching for Bobby Fischer was on TV the other night, and I watched a lot of that. And she's so good in that, too. Like, um, God, I fucking love her. But yeah, listen to our Upside of Anger episode. We go in on the Joan Allen of it all. Rogers Hornsby was my manager, and he called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, no. No! No! And you know why? No. Because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball! No crying! What's the matter, Jimmy? What? She's crying, sir. I want to talk about Tom Hanks for a second. I want to talk about America's dad, Tom Hanks, who... Mr. Rita Wilson. Mr. Rita Wilson. uh, Chet's... Chet's uh, reluctant dad. Um, <laughs> um, famously won back-to-back Oscars in the 90s, a thing that a lot of people sort of, you know, have feelings about. I think there was a while there where Tom Hanks was sort of trying to live that down a little bit and sort of fight back to regain a little bit of his street cred, which I think maybe took until Captain Phillips to to sort of revisit. Um I could have had Captain Phillips as my Tom Hanks snub, uh, and I was a little surprised that Katie Rich didn't pull out uh, me too, Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips. Me too. Me too. Um, the thing about Tom Hanks in the '90s is he would have been wholly justified in having back-to-back Oscars in the '90s. The thing is, it shouldn't have been for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. It should have been. Uh, 1992, A League of Their Own, followed by Philadelphia uh, for a lead actor. I think Best Supporting Actor in 1992, Tom Hanks in A League of Their Own is so fucking funny and good. There's a read on that movie where I guess you could call him a lead, but like that is Gina Davis and Laurie Petty's movie. And, yes. and he is definitely a featured supporting player. By this point in his career, he's still a comedic actor. He's the guy from Big and the Burbs and, you know, uh, Joe versus the Volcano and whatnot. And, um, uh, what's you call it? The one where the bathtub falls through the floor. Um, the money pit, the money pit, you know, How all dare that. you disrespect Shelley Long. Listen, I just couldn't think of the title for a second. I remember that bathtub falling through the floor. Um, so he's sort of like, he's a great comedic actor at this point, And it's sort of interesting that he only has one nomination for a comedic performance, which is a nomination for big. Um, he's so fucking funny in a league of their own, just like on top of the fact that it is wild that a league of their own has zero, zero Oscar nominations. We're going to do we'll, this movie. I will point. eventually do it. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to maybe I want to save a little bit for when we do talk about that. But like for as much as the there's no crying in baseball scene has become a little bit of like cinematic wallpaper and that like it's on every clip reel and it's, you know, whatever. He's so funny. Every single word he says in that scene is so funny. The scene where he throws the baseball mitt and hits the kid and uh, uh, goes, ha ha, got him like that is so good. <laughs> Uh, he plays the loutishness of Jimmy Dugan so well, and yet, like, the redemption of him, too. You really, really kind of love him by the end. He and Gina Davis have some really good kind of, like, heart-to-heart scenes in a way where a lesser movie would have tried to throw in a romantic wrench into that thing, and I'm glad that the movie ultimately made the decision not to do that. Um, 
one of my favorite performances of Hanks's entire career, and I am a Hanks guy. I really like Tom Hanks a lot, but he's he's on another level in a league of their own. Where do you where do you come down on this performance? I think I think this is a great call. I think it's a perfect Joe Reed call. I'm so happy a league of their own is on this list somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Nominees in 1992. Gene Hackman kind of wins everything that year for Unforgiven on his route to the Oscar. Other nominees, Jay Davidson for The Crying Game, Jack Nicholson for A Few Good Men, Al Pacino for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and David Paymer for Mr. Saturday Night. So here's the thing is I'm not getting rid of Jay Davidson. I am like the last remaining defender of The Crying Game. I really... Uh, I still really love that movie. I know that there is problematic up the wazoo for that movie, and I don't, I don't disagree. And yet, um, I really, really love that movie. Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men is again a high carb performance that is uh, satisfying. <laughs> it's a chicken farm. That's it a is. good that chicken, is a farm, chicken of a farm of a performance. That is a yes, one hundred percent. And I and I uh, clean my plate with that. He's so fucking good and big and scary and detestable. Um, it's been a minute since I've seen Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, but like I remember thinking Pacino's very good in that movie, and yet I maybe might not have nominated him for I think if I nominate anybody, I know it's a different category, but like it's kind of bizarre He's to me. He's my winner in this lineup. It, that's interesting. Um uh I think if you nominate anybody from Glenn Gary, you nominate Lemon and Lead, uh and right. and whatever, but that's apples and oranges at this point. I saw Mr. Saturday Night a long time ago. Um I didn't love it. I I didn't I didn't find it objectionable. I just found it kind of boring and a little self-regarding and a little like that was Billy Billy Crystal really wanted to win an Oscar after all those years hosting and um, really went for it. Ultimately he doesn't get nominated. Pamer does. And I remember him being sort of proud of Pamer for the nomination, but probably like kind of visibly sad that, uh, that he wasn't the nominee. But anyway, Pamer's fine in Mr. Saturday night. You know what I mean? He's the sort of long suffering one in that, in that movie. But I don't think that movie needs to be an Oscar nominee in any kind of uh, fashion. And I, for as much as it sucks to pull a character actor Oscar nomination from like a, you know, real work a day character actor, give it to him a couple years later for a quiz show. He's so good and slimy and, and, you know, everybody in quiz show. Well, that's good to hear because if that was an undecided, we need to learn to work on our people skills. (laughs) That was what American President. Yeah, he's great yes, in that movie. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, wait a second, I know that line. Yeah, that's American President. Um, but yeah, I think it's Pamer. I think I, I think I boot him. Unforch. How dare you? We only have one left, Chris. We have been talking for a while. Let's uh, let's booted Hackman. I hate that movie. Really? Um, you hate even the performance of Hackman? You don't like? Oh, Interesting. No. no. Fascinating. Okay. Sorry. All right. All right. So our last one yes. for this episode. Yes. Listeners, thank you for... We started on uh, Best Actress. We're going to end on Best Actress. We're going to end on Best Actress, too. Isn't it you who made me give up divorcing? Didn't you talk to me here in this house about sacrifice and sparing scandal? And for May's sake and for yours, I did what you asked no, me. I think. 
This is a movie I have very strong feelings about the movie mm-hmm. and the performance. I have a strong feeling about its uh, Oscar place. I thought about putting this movie in a bunch of different categories. Best picture, best director. It got a couple Oscar nominations. It won for costumes, I believe. 1993. Best actress, Michelle Pfeiffer, The Age of Innocence. Countess Olenska? Am I getting the character's name right? Right? I think I'm right. Also, a very, very heated, very often talked about best actress race because you have holly hunter winning and angela bassett nominated for what's love got to do with it Mm -hmm. it's a great one of the greatest actress lineups of all time yeah i mean the uh, it's an unimpeachable win also angela bassett would have been unimpeachable even though especially post tina documentary there are complicated feelings to be had about the movie itself um I still think that this should be Michelle Pfeiffer's Oscar. I And this also means I had to not put Michelle Pfeiffer on this list because of our rules for Batman Returns. Uh, a tough call, I would tough say. Tough call, but I'm standing by it. I am standing in this call. Okay. This movie has... I've seen so many people, you know, when everybody's doing Scorsese rankings, I've seen so many straight critics be like, oh, all these people who think they're special by putting the Age of Innocence on there. Fuck you, uh, straight bro. The Age of Innocence is a fucking masterpiece. I'm dying to rewatch it. It's been forever since I've seen it, and I really, really owe it a rewatch. You know, it got, you know, kind of a disappointing Oscar reception and a box office reception because this is one of the movies people forget about this. This is one of the Scorsese movies that were delayed by a year, basically, because he was cutting it. It's an Edith Wharton adaptation. We've talked about The House of Mirth. I think it's even better than House of Mirth. It, in terms of. This is the movie that Miriam Margulies hates Winona Ryder for because Winona Ryder (laughs) wasn't supporting instead of what she thought it should have been a lead. And then Miriam uh, would have had a a supporting campaign for that movie. Yes. Yes. She's not a lead in the movie, Miriam. No. No. Listen, Miriam can say what she wants whenever she goes on Graham Norton and I will eat it up. Uh, Oh, absolutely. But yes. Please talk shit about more people, even if you're wrong. Exactly. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer, though. Yes. I think what everything this movie does to capture period-specific longing and emotional suffering is so incredibly precise and knocks the fucking wind out of me every yeah. time I watch it. Yeah. Um, there is a line that she says in this movie, I am enduring it, that is just like, oh my... One of the... One of my favorite acting beats I have ever seen. Quintessential Pfeiffer yeah. fire underneath ice. Yep. We talked moment. a lot in the Frankie and Johnny episode where we covered Frankie and Johnny, which also go back and listen to that one. Um, about the the sort of the press narrative. Uh, episode 52, by the way, Frankie and Johnny. Um, the press narrative around Pfeiffer that she and was, that she was, you know, icy and reserved and and i think that bled a lot into the way after a while the way that people would review her performances and i think this particular character played right into the hands of people who wanted to not value pfeiffer as an actress because of that sort of tendency to be very good at playing icy 
you know, clo- not I mean, necessarily I would argue off, that this movie, yeah. if you get on its wavelength, you realize that she's weaponizing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just like a real emotional blow to this performance that I don't know if we often get from Pfeiffer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, like it's no it, the vibe that this movie is going for. It's no wonder that like people who don't understand what's so great about Carol don't understand what's so great about this movie. <laughs> sure. Like it's that vibe. Yeah, friends. Yeah, but this. I mean, it's a performance I had to put on there. Pfeiffer had to be on there, and even if it's not for Batman Returns, I am so sorry to so many of you who probably disagree. What's with me. interesting is by this be by here. this point in in time, in terms of film discussion, at least in the film discussions that I'm in age of innocence, the Martin Scorsese costume drama feels like a more daring choice than Michelle Pfeiffer should have been nominated for Batman returns, the Tim Burton superhero movie, because so many people have come around on that Pfeiffer performance. And because we live in the age of superhero movies now that I almost feel like the Scorsese choice is the more interesting option for you to choose. And maybe the more interesting choice for this movie, too. Scorsese, while, you know, much like Spielberg, I think is ultimately underrated by the Oscars. Uh, Shout out to Katie Rich as well. Um, All right. Last time we talked about Katie. No more more name dropping Katie. We're not allowed. But that's it. We've reached our limit. (laughs) She's royalty on this show. She is. We love her, of course. Uh, Okay. This lineup, however legendary i mean like mo- the, the holly of- hunter versus angela bassett thing is one of the most talked about like actress races but then i think also firmly in third place and like a worthy winner as well is stalker channing in six degrees of separation I, a, a tremendous performance on the right day i'm casting my vote for stalker channing in this category and i don't yeah. necessarily blame you yeah. like yeah. you know the other two nominees emma thompson remains of the day and Deborah Winger and Shadowlands. Have you Emma seen Shadowlands? So good, I have. Yeah, I saw it very recently. Deborah Winger's my boot. I hate to shit on Deborah Winger. She's more not than bad, the but has. like it's four great ones and then a very good one. I think is this replace guy. her with Pfeiffer in this lineup, and you've got an all timer. I think it's an all timer anyway, but it's even more of an all timer. I think if you put in Pfeiffer in there, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. All right, much as with the AFI 100 Years, 100 Movies, whenever they went to commercial, they would recap the the movies. So I'm going to very quickly and very uh, economically run down our 20 choices in this episode, and maybe we'll play the AFI music underneath me or whatever. Um, Cameron Diaz, In Her Shoes, Best Actress, 2005. River Phoenix, My Own Private Idaho, Best Actor, 1991. Nicole Holof Center, Walking and Talking, Best Original Screenplay, 1996. Dream Girls, Best Picture, 2006, Producers to be Determined. No, 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 no. It's too hard to figure out what producers would have been nominated for a movie, so we didn't do that. Um, uh, Bo Welch, Tom, Tom Duffield, and Catherine Mann for Beetlejuice, Best Art Direction, 1988. Leslie Manville, Another Year, Best Supporting Actress, 2010. Do the Right Thing, Best Picture, 1989. Stories We Tell, Best Documentary Feature, 2014. Anthony Dodd Mantle, 28 Days Later, Best Cinematography, 2003. Amy Heckerling, Clueless, Best Adapted Screenplay, 1995. Drive It Like You Stole It, Sing Street, Best Original Song, 2016. 
Lisa Day, Stop Making Sense, Best Film Editing, 1984. Catherine O'Hara, Home Alone, Best Supporting Actress, 1990. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, Best Picture, 1969. Producers to be determined. Producers to be determined. Emmy Wada, Hero, Best Costume Design, 2004. David Cronenberg, Dead Ringers, Best Director, 1988. Ben Zeitlin and Dan Romer, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Best Original Score, 2012. Joan Allen, Pleasantville, Supporting Actress, 1998. Tom Hanks, A League of Their Own, Supporting Actor, 1992. And Michelle Pfeiffer, The Age of Innocence, Best Actress, 1993. Those are the first 20 of 100 snubs. Wow. We are on go. a journey we're on a journey you guys 80 plus to go if you count our uh, our guests that's true yeah we want to thank katie rich for bringing us uh fight the power from do the right thing we want to thank kevin o'keefe for bringing us jessica chastain best actress for molly's game 2017 we we hit some good ones here chris i feel like we came out the gate uh, this is a long episode. We're going to see if we can maybe be a little bit more May concise. is a buffet. <laughs> We're going to see if we can be maybe a little bit more concise in our episodes going forward, but no promises. Listen. We we had we had to set it up we this did. episode. We had at least a good 20 minutes to set up. That's true. Listen. That's true. Yes. We're hopefully giving you a fun feast and a wide range of cuisine. That's right. All right. I got to stop comparing movies to food. I am starving now, so we got to get off of this call so I can have lunch. And that's our episode. If you want more of this Hat Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishatoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at hat underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at thishatoscarbuzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Twitter and letterboxed at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So don't drive it like you stole it. Review it like you love it. Hey. <laughs> That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more snubs